0: Welcome to more interseason goodness from your friends at Sequelizers. As always, I am your host, Jack Chambers, and joining me is Matthew Stogden. <laughs> Actually, it's uh, legally distinct from Godzilla, but still,
1: <laughs> it's Godzilla.
0: <laughs> Got my own reference in for this episode, you're welcome. And uh, joining me a Matt, as usual, is Mr. Timmate.
2: mate. I want to suck your blood.
1: Ooh. Ooh.
0: Nice. As you probably guessed from the fantastic intros and the title of the fucking episode, we're discussing some of our favorites, some of the most memorable, some of the most interesting movie monsters from the history of cinema. <laughs> Matt's intro may have uh, clued you into the obvious one, but before we get to our, <laughs> our picks, for most memorable, do you guys remember the first kind of moment where you realize like movie monsters was a thing like it's almost like its own genre at this point like Mm. where you see like the king kongs and the godzillas and then you spin off into like the the universal monsters and all that kind of stuff do you remember the first one you saw because i remember seeing i remember seeing 1998 godzilla was it 97 whatever it is the 90s terrible godzilla Thinking like, well, this is shit because I had seen the original Godzilla about a year or two before because my dad had like introduced me to it. I didn't clue in on any of the fucking, you know, subtext or a- anything interesting. I was just like a sick, uh, like a what, eight-year-old kid having my mind blown by yeah. all this. Like, yeah. I'd never seen those kind of effects before, and I didn't really know. I'd seen Jurassic Park a couple of years ago. And I was like, what other dinosaur things are there? My dad was like. <laughs> mm-hmm this is sort of a dinosaur, I guess, game to watch Godzilla. It'll be fine. And uh, yeah, so the, the the first Godzilla movie from the 50s was my introduction into wow. the movie monsters. And then quickly after that, I saw 1998 Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> was like, oh, he likes dinosaurs and Godzilla. Oh, hmm. I'm not so keen on Matthew Broderick, though.
2: <laughs> Does he like oh, well. irradiated worms? <laughs> oh, God, These Chernobyl like, yeah. worms are so um, large.
0: Yeah, and I, I can't remember the time when I kind of, I'm not even sure if I was aware they were supposed to be the same thing, because like, that is so different from the Godzilla that I knew. Like, is that, is that supposed to be the same monster? Is this some weird spin-off? Is this some remake? At that age, I didn't have a concept of remakes and reboots and all that kind of stuff, so I, I don't know if I was aware of it. But I remember learning about the Universal Monsters in my teenage years and kind of. I think I saw Monster Squad before I saw any of the actual individual stuff. I was like, "Who the hell are all these characters?" And as we talked about on the uh, Revenge of the Creature episode, there are a bunch of the classics I hadn't seen until fairly recently, including Creature from the Black Lagoon, Revenge of the Creature, all that kind of stuff. I had a load to catch up on for that episode, so I kind of knew the context and stuff like that. But do you guys remember your introductions into the movie monster?
2: Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I have a weirdly similar one to that in terms of the Universal monsters, and I think it's probably a lot for our our generation. Where much like you've you've mentioned before, I kind of got introduced to them in parody form before I ever saw like genuine versions. And the one that really sticks out for me is uh, the monsters, which obviously was like from the fifties or sixties, but used to like play on BBC at random times, like at sort of six thirty on a weekday kind of thing, and familiarising myself with the tropes that way of just kind of like oh yeah, look, he's a Frankenstein and then the, the, the little son is a, a werewolf and then he's a Dracula and you know, kind of absorbing all those iconic portrayals in the most you know roundabout way. And then I think weirdly the, the, the first one that sticks in my mind is uh, a monster that I now kind of look at and go, it's pretty shit, which was the aliens from Independence Day, just because I can remember getting that on VHS. And, And I I seem to remember seeing something that was kind of talking about how like, oh, yes, you know, and and of course, it's just an update of War of the Worlds. And, you know, taking taking that and and remaking it for the 20th century or, you know, the 90s or whatever. Uh, And one of these sort of TV shows where it was like, you know, oh, look at all these funny old, you know, monster films from the from the 50s and 60s with, you know, aliens and barely disguised men in costumes as Bigfoot robots and stuff like that. And, yeah, just that kind of cultural osmosis, really, before I really encountered an iconic kind of pure monster in cinema. How about you, Matt?
3: Um, I have an incredibly similar story to Tim. I think, yeah, basically through the the medium of parody and homage, the Scooby-Doo one where they like the Scooby-Doo, I think, 80s sort of feature specials away where they like go to like Monster High or something like that, and it's all like a girls' school full of like the kids of the famous monsters, <laughs> the Universal Monsters. So again, you are aware so much of the creatures in question, but not really much of the stories about them. I keep trying to think. I think I saw both Kenneth Branners Frankenstein when I was about ten or eleven. And the Frankenstein scenes In the Doctor Who movie with Paul McGann. Oh wow, nice! (laughs) Before I realised that they were from the original Frankenstein from the '30s, I was like, oh, because again, you you have no real idea of timelines at that age. You're like, oh, just you just absorb it as and when it comes into your life, as it were. Weirdly enough, the first time I saw a monster movie that I can remember, I could be very wrong with this, but you're very much a slave to schedule unless you have someone in your life who is introducing these things. I did not. I didn't have any movie person in my life. I kind of discovered it on my own, as it were parents have never really been that bothered by films. I would have whenever my mum would go see a film, how, I would How were you made if they're not bothered I don't like, <laughs> like what I, happened? I don't know. They just rebelled against it. So my my dad Matt, Matt fell
2: into a vat of radioactive VHS. <laughs> <laughs> That's all VHS.
3: Yeah, I I I think it's my my, my dad and my mum might watch like a like a Western or my my dad would watch a Western film on TV because it happened to be on sort of thing. And my mum would go to the cinema sometimes with a friend or something and see like I can't even think of a good example, unfortunately, uh, a film from the early 90s, and I would just want to know about it. I don't know why. And then when I started to go watch films of cinema, so I remember very distinctly the first, mm, I will to say the first, the, the big one I remember is Jurassic Park. When I was, um, Do I was you consider
0: that a monster movie? Yeah, man. It's weird, yeah. I, uh, having said that, Jurassic Park is, like I said, is one of my favourite films. That was my first monster movie, if we're counting that. But I was like, I didn't really think about that. But yeah, you're totally right. I guess it's, it is.
3: Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a genre spanner, certainly, because it goes through action, adventure, uh, technically sci-fi. It's got so much going in it because it is a big all-rounder, because it is a you know major blockbuster, but at the same time, the, the 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 quintessential thing is man messes with thing, monster comes out, and, and again, I do like that one thing I would give Jurassic World a credit for. They don't. They said these aren't dinosaurs. They're monsters we made. If you look at what dinosaurs were actually like and what we created, they're not the same thing. Obviously, they talk about CGI and all that sort of nature of the the nature of paleontology moving on that sort of field study. But ultimately, they are very much following the format of of a monster movie. Big thing chases people. People are vulnerable, and they don't know how to beat it. You know, it's a survivalist thing. And again, if anyone who says, "Well, I don't know about that," then you can't count some of the classics straight up. But to answer the question. Jurassic Park was the first big one for me. But the one I remember is I remember seeing advertised on the TV, The Fly. It's back Ooh, in the Britain, nice. the radio times. And, and you would have like, Oh, that's a thing. I've heard the fly is good. Cause you had like one older brother of a friend who'd seen the fly and said it was really <laughs> cool. Yeah. And there's this guy and he goes in a teleportation pod and he comes out and he breaks the guys arm. And again, it's on like, the
0: Simpsons first, just like mm. everything else in my fucking life. Yeah.
3: Very distinctly, they were describing Jeff Goldblum. I wasn't watching Jeff Goldblum. I was watching <laughs> the 1958 version of The Fly. Oh, interesting. Okay. I was like, very th- I thought, I don't, I don't get this. It's black and white. I watched but it. I was promised Jeff Goldblum, God <laughs> damn it! Yeah. And he wasn't in like, I didn't Again, I think this was before Jurassic Park, so I don't even know, I think I knew Jeff Goldblum from anything in particular.
2: Mm, right. I was so- promised the complex sexuality of Jeff Goldblum.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and all I get is this black and white nonsense of a fly-headed man running around smashing things but i remember distinctly thinking it was very very long and I've, if i if i was honest at the time i thought it was very boring it's not it's actually quite functional it's very good and there was so little actual monster and that set me up i do i do genuinely give that i think credit for me understanding monster movies later
0: the, the we'll less is like, more mentality kind, kind of, of thing, yeah i'm sure we'll be discussing in a few
3: examples yeah later. I mean, in episode one of this show where we discussed Jaws, the same principle of like the workable format is that you tease this thing out and then you go all out and you show it everything you can. But the fly, I remember very distinctly watching and thinking stuff's happening. I don't really care about this. If there's a guy, he's doing some science. I don't know. And then finally <laughs> came the whole, oh, there's the fly man. Oh, he's nasty and weird. Oh, that's a bit silly. And then finally, he goes outside and said, well, what happened to the scientist? And it was hilariously stupid. And I was like,
2: happy, happy.
3: Yeah, and he's in the web and he takes a rock and crushes it and I thought <laughs> uh, he had a squeaky voice I wasn't you know um, enthralled by the the horror of it because it wasn't really horrific to me I was, I was already desensitised to it because it was you know weakened some of the stuff I was watching on Star Trek Next Generation or something you know it's, it's not nearly as out there as it could be so I think that The Fly and Jurassic Park are probably my my two introductions but when I realised that that was a sort of a thing, that changed very quickly.
2: I don't want to drag us back to the beginning of your explanation there, but when asked about your earliest uh, memories of monsters, you definitely mentioned Monster High, the tween girls doll franchise, which started in 2010. Should like to dive <laughs> into that a little bit.
0: I'm going to the good old days when Matt was
1: 26
3: watching Monster <laughs> High. No, no, it's it's a it's a film called Scooby Doo and the Ghoul School. It was a nineteen eighty eight thing, and yeah, there, there was Frankenstein and Count Dracula and, and a werewolf and a mummy and all that kind of stuff. And it was yeah, it was it was a just a Scooby Doo thing with monsters. So I kind of liked it. You can judge for yourself, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think it. No, I'm not gonna say holds up. I don't think holds up at all.
0: Um, it's it's. I almost it's,
3: guarantee it doesn't. Yeah, it's it's classic trash, but I watched it because, of course I fucking did. Um, I'm pretty sure it's just literally Shaggy, Scooby, and Scrappy, and no one else. So you know the quality will be... Mm, the highlight. <laughs> the, the <best. laughs> I mean, I thought, I've always hated Scooby-Doo. So, so with regards to that, should we talk about the idea of what makes a monster movie? I mean, in terms of actual components. The, uh, the, the assemblage of pieces, if you will, because ultimately it is tricky. You can have an opponent who is quite intense, like Gort from... Um, the Day the Earth Stood Still. But that's very, very, very clearly science fiction. The fact he is a, a, you know, this sentient being walked towards like a golem, as it were, that's fine, but it doesn't make it a monster movie in a way. It would seem the monster... Are we about, comp-
0: are we about to get into some weird definitions where you define something <laughs> as, let's say, a twist rather than a reveal, and then say, but the dog's gender, that's the real <laughs> shit. Because if you're about to say... Very clear definitions and then just ignore <laughs> examples of those definitions to fit your own narrative. Don't try it, Matthew. The listeners have heard Samantha. The listeners know about your bullshit and your hypocrisy. All right. Well none of this. I, I'm glad you
3: brought that up. I am Legend is definitely a good example. Of, monster no, of, that, of a, twist, a monster moving. No, of of a twist, because the dog <laughs> and the dog is a monster. The real monster, of course, is the dog from the start. That's the real truth. Um, she didn't help shouldn't help with the science no i mean yes partly i'm probably going to say something and then go back on it but i think that's the part of the <laughs> that's part of the discussion it, it is difficult because m- part of you thinks like well okay clearly a monster is a big bounding terrifying you know going back to like the the, the silent films like the golem and stuff and it's a thing of fairy tale mythology something that's going to get you in the woods and then you think well actually no because there has to be a degree of sentience because that we also include things like dracula who is just effectively a dude and yes okay yes supernatural powers and things and then to say well hang on does that mean then oh it has to be a, a creature or being with supernatural powers or, or extra uh, ordinary powers and then you're like well not necessarily because that doesn't it's 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 a very difficult one to technically i mean there's the classic pornography mindset what is pornography I don't know, but I know when I see it, that kind of thing. You know, you can't redefine really it as such. Um, it's, it's, it's very interesting because, again, you can think, well, what's, what's your favourite monster movie? Uh, Margin Call. Why is that? The true monster.
1: Capitalism. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, we'll get into some of those examples later on. Oh, yeah. There's plenty of plenty- <laughs> Like we mentioned, I know we're gonna talk about him later on, but Godzilla is a perfect example, the kind mm, of mm. founding father for want of a better phrase, of the the giant monster genre as we know it. Mm. And it's all an analogy for nuclear power and nuclear war and all this kind of shit. And like, you know, sure. It's all socioeconomic, socio political commentary and all this kind of stuff, as are some of the, the films and the examples we'll talk to you later on. But when you said Jurassic Park's a monster movie, I'm like, oh, that's a that's an interesting one because now you said it, I totally see what you mean. But then under the same logic, like Alien is a monster movie, I guess. But Technically. Then, yeah, exactly. Aliens is not, of,
3: but Alien is.
0: Yeah, you're kind of blending and blurring the, the genres there because obviously you've got science fiction in both Jurassic Park and Alien as mm-hmm. well. They're both kind of horror, thriller kind of things. And I think horror, thriller stuff is very common in monster films in that way, but that then leans into, and as you said, uh, Dracula, you then lean into like the universal monster stuff, which is mm. Wolfman, Gilman, Dracula, Frankenstein's mm. monster, all that kind of stuff, which is completely mm. different from the more blockbustery like Jaws and Jurassic Park and the Kaiju movies, Godzilla, sure, King sure. Kong, all that kind of stuff. I guess they're almost like two different, like parallel paths of the same thing, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, th- I think you can't really lump Godzilla in with Frankenstein and be like, yeah, they're both the same thing, but uh, we'll, we'll be talking about a bit of both nonetheless.
2: I think, so I, My I uh, when I was thinking about this, I was mainly thinking about kind of what makes a good monster rather than what just makes a pure monster movie, but I think it's in- interesting to note there, and especially in the way you distinguish, like, Alien is a monster movie, but Aliens isn't. Mm-hmm. One of the key things that seems to unite a lot of these is that it is people who are unprepared and who are non-military, not even necessarily like experts, who find themselves having to deal with these things. The mm-hmm. lay people,
0: um, if, as it were.
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's an important factor, but not necess- I- I'm sure that there are more than a few monster films you could point to and go like, well, it's not true here.
3: Well, the, the truth is there's so much crossover in terms of just even genre alone that you could say, oh, well, obviously all, all monster movies are horror movies. And like, mm. Colossal with Anne Hathaway is a monster movie. Yeah. That's not a horror. I mean, yes, there's, nah. there's you know, a bit more dour than people thought it was going to be. It's still very funny. But the point is yeah. that it's still
0: Being a, a bit movie. more dour does not a monster movie make.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but my... So my, my, I had my four... Uh, a Venn diagram, so to speak, Ooh, okay. of factors that make a good monster. Tim's so not
0: the infographics. Let's go! I'm excited.
2: Not like every monster histograms. has these, but I think the best monsters combine at least three, if not all four, of these. Okay, okay. I'm missing. So, terror. Yes. Something that 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 is terrifying that be- inspires fear. Yes. Okay. Uh, okay, or good. something that is just inspires this kind of fascination wonder but in in a kind of almost like a biblical like my God kind of sense the, the typical word of awesome originally just yes the large, yeah, exactly yeah. you're inspiring uh, awe yeah. yes. yes your uh you know your your big swelling Jurassic park theme moment kind of thing yes sympathy I think mm. that they're the best monsters have or Best monsters of a certain type have an element of sympathy to them. I think it's possible to have a good monster that you have no sympathy for, but I think the ones that really, really stick in the mind do have an element of that. Yes. And then the fourth thing I've called the Rampage Factor. (laughs) And that's basically how much do I want to see this creature wreck shit? Because there is a certain joy to just seeing like, oh, yeah. Frankenstein's a big undead um, dude and I kind of want him to see just, just see him go to town on these villagers and just like grab some pitchforks, smack them over people's heads and throw them out that windmill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Get in the lake, kid. Poof. <laughs> <laughs> just punt that child into that water feature.
3: It is interesting because, again, if you take the nature of remakes, it, 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 Frankenstein's a really interesting and important one in general. He's not an official pick from any of us, so I think if we talk about him briefly, that might be a a good starting point. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Frankenstein is, at the start of it all, an adaptation. So it is a novel first. Yeah, novel. novel. And because of that, it's obviously working off source material with its own influences and cultural points and so on and so forth. And there are various bits and pieces. Now, the first adaptation of this book from the 1800s in the early 1930s um, was just straight up, it is a monster, uh, it's going to smash things. But it still had that slight element of humanising quality to it, the sympathy element. Um, and it was interesting how not as much of that from the book is sort of you know kept over until like, the sequel, Bride of Frankenstein, which really drilled down in it really nicely. And it's, it's considered one of the perfect examples of a sequel that is better than the original. And I very much stand by that. Br- Bride of Frankenstein was the best films ever made. And Subsequently, the remake, the Kenneth Branagh one, I know there's been lots of different versions of Frankenstein, but I'm going to that one just because it's, you know, boom, straight to the 90s. The <laughs> Ken Branagh version of the of the thing was with Robert De Niro as this creature. I think it's a massively underrated adaptation. And I think it's very interesting. And De Niro makes it really, really, really sort of resonate, I think, very well. The whole good spirit of the forest kind of stuff and him getting beaten up and crying in the woods and things like that and think I'm, you know, ballistic and shit. I think it's, uh, it's more important. And then interestingly, I can't remember who it was. I don't remember. Which dickhead. And in some political discourse online, either in a newspaper clipping or alternatively in an actual tweet said um, about an gen- entire generation or a person that the idea is that oh, they're the kinds of people who think Frankenstein is the good guy or something and not the monster. And you're like, that is the fucking point of a story. Frankenstein <laughs> is a creation who didn't ask for this. The real monster is the fucking doctor, you Idiots and the rest of the villagers in their panic. The whole thing is a statement about society, and etc., etc., etc. But people don't seem to realise that because you've been bred on the idea just from a a concept that monster bad kill monster. Even though in truth, <laughs> there's either the unknowable entity monster, which is fucking terrifying, or there's the monster who sympathetic. You think, oh, I feel like that could have been handled differently. The the one that is interesting as well the, the, about the unknowable entity monster, because there's a clear there's a clear line here. Undead dude, monster. Giant, beast, monster. Ghost, not monster. <laughs> I don't know. It, the Poltergeist to, is not a monster movie. Yeah. Does it have to have a body? Multiple things like zombies, mm. still monster movie. It's or, or interesting. Some people might
0: not w- think I w- that. I wouldn't but... think zombie would be a monster movie either, but I can mm. see the argument for it. Again, yeah. with your loose fucking hypocritical definitions. <laughs> kind of, with you coming up with bullshit definitions on the fly and just fitting them to your narrative. Who knows? Anything's a monster movie at this point.
3: It's like me drawing a circle, and all of a sudden, someone's just rubbing out the line as I'm going around. It's like, can, can you stop that, please? Um, you're Sleepy just Hollow. The word Samantha, over and over again. <laughs> keep rubbing
0: out the anther, and you're like, no, <laughs> no
3: damn it, it's a dog. So, um, Sleepy Hollow. I would say is probably a monster movie as well as a ghost movie, because he's an un- he's the same thing as like an he's an undead resurrected thing. He's as much as a universal monster, you know, the the headless horseman kind of thing. The Capod Crane story. It's it's the same. Principle. I
0: think ghosts fit more into the universal, like oh, it's a spooky, supernatural thing, than yeah. they do into the For one of our phrase, the kaiju category, the, the, the disaster yes, movie, or yes. whatever you want to call that. Kind mm. of, whereas, like, you get you do get some crossover there, I guess, but I think, mm. like I said, I think those are two fairly distinct categories within this genre. Sure. And I think you can discuss them as a whole, and I think eventually oh, yeah, we will yeah. probably, we'll probably do an episode on like the universal monsters and their history or something. It's such an interesting journey through cinema.
2: You talk about the the dark universe story. The dark, sorry, the dark <laughs> universe.
0: That's what I meant to say. Yes, the dark universe. Yeah, everybody. Everybody's favourite cinematic universe uh, is just the
3: biggest thing. Johnny right Depp as the Invisible Man and Javier Bardem as Frankenstein. Good times. Good times.
0: But yeah, I, I, I think you're stuck in those two categories, and it's difficult to kind of cross over between the two. Mm. And yeah, you could get away with ghosts in one, but you're not getting away with ghosts in the other. And no. And you can't really put the rampage factor much into like. Do you want to see a polka, poltergeist smash some shit up? Eh, uh, I guess a smash a New
3: York up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because technically, no. To Ghostbusters doesn't count, but stay puffed, stay puffed, marshmallow man might count. He's a kaiju, sort of. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's really tricky. There is a film theory that genre is bullshit in the same way that most categorizations are ultimately bullshit one film is nothing like another film and if you don't believe that watch the force awakens the last jedi and rise of skywalker (laughs) no cohesion the truth is even if you're trying to be the same thing you don't always achieve that and so to to say that you know literally hundreds of thousands of films are the same category like this is a war film i guess and then we include aliens in there it's like well Hang, hang on a minute, and then you include something that's entirely separate, like you know, uh, the Amazon film "Last Flag Flying" with Brian Cranston and Lawrence Fishburne and stuff like that. And it's like that's technically a war movie. It's the effect of war. It's 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 a, it's a vow of veterans and things. Like that. it's like yeah, that, that actually does make sense. The problem is a categorization is designed. Sorry, its sole purpose is to sell you something. So for I, if I say to Tim, Tim, you should watch "The Negotiator." Oh no, bad example, Kevin Spacey. Tim, it's <laughs> still a good film there. Um, Tim, you should watch, let's um, take a good, nice easy one. Uh, uh, Tim, you should watch Million Dollar Baby. And I was like, okay, fine, no problem at all. What, what kind of film is it? And you just say, the sports film. Oh, okay. Or you say, no, it's a drama. Oh, okay. No, it's a heart-rending film about, uh, you know, a father and a sort of daughter figure. Oh, okay. No, it's a medical drama. Oh, okay. Because all <laughs> of those things are technically accurate. It's, it's a comedy, it's a drama It's a thriller. And so you end up having this ridiculous You know Open net of things And the more you want to describe saying, oh Tim you should watch The Omen Oh what kind of thing is? Horror, now to be fair Horror is an interesting one Because horror and science fiction you just go Boom, genre pieces it were, inverted commas Or fantasy, that kind of thing
2: Except now when we start calling things new horror Because they're really good And f- uh, certain like yes. Publications don't want to just say Hey these horror films are good Yeah,
3: precisely. You end up with the air of pretension. It's, it's the nature of the comic graphic novel discussion. And you're like, exactly. Yeah. Um, you, you, you label it differently to sell it to different audiences. It's the same fucking product. It's the same thing, but you have to sell it it to other people. So if I just say, I mean, another bastard, comedy. If you say to somebody, it's a comedy, you're like, okay, what's it called? The Descendants. What's the comedy called? National Security with Martin Lawrence. Like Those (laughs) are two very different comedies. (laughs) So to say our favorite monsters, and this is the key thing, I think we were saying the definition was monsters rather than monster movies, because the definition of if the film is good is a different discussion to if the monster is good so but again categorization is unfortunate but it's necessary because it's the language you use with which to talk to each other so as much as we're hypocritically saying hey this discussion is about monsters and people say well i don't know if i count that as a monster and you're like okay well it got you in the door in the first place so (laughs) job done and it's what i want to talk about so yeah fuck you mutants are monsters i've decided But let's see what we did. What did we actually decide on? What were the things we said we should uh, say these monsters so we can, everyone can call us out and say, the dog from I Am Legend?
2: Let's stop beating around the bush and instead see what horrible things crawled out from it. Ooh, exactly. Tim. Exactly.
0: I know I've hinted at a couple of times. I feel like, Matt, we, we've we got to go straight to you with, for one of our phrase, the big one. The king of what the monsters. The king of the monsters.
3: Oh, see, there's, there's a... There's a crown here, and I'm not sure it's, it's for him. But, okay. So, Godzilla, or Gojira, whichever one you want to say, uh, depending on your level of information and or pretension. Um, <laughs> so, if you like a particular French metal band. Ah, which Jack and I do. Godzilla released in 1954, um, big-ass, what's now called a kaiju film, technically. And so the idea is that... And this is why I want to come back to the fly very quickly because this was important. When Gareth Edwards did the American re 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 remake of uh, King <laughs> of Godzilla, uh, the the I think the I want to say the second might have been the third attempt to to bring it to the West. Um, people were saying it was slow, it was boring. There wasn't a lot of Godzilla until the end when it was really good. And I said, Have you watched the 1954 film Godzilla? Welcome to Godzilla. Yeah, <laughs> and there are in truth. Two types of Godzilla fans. There are those who love the allegory, and those who will like say, "What are the best examples of the of Godzilla?" And you say, "Okay, well, technically, Godzilla, nineteen fifty-four, Shin Godzilla, and arguably Gareth Edwards Godzilla, because they are all slow burn and have a thing to say about society." Um, uh, Gareth Edwards Godzilla and Shin Godzilla are talking about the nature of obviously like climate change and the nuclear power plant disaster in fukushima and things like that and th- the bureaucracy of japanese politics where they were like we have to hold 60 meetings before we decide to do anything it's like what the fuck are you doing everything's in on fire as it were um and that's what it was trying to to, to highlight and parody but, or draw attention to which the japanese got there immediately western audience said this is silly why the hell the other meeting it's like yeah because you don't get it so <laughs> when you watch a godzilla film people say oh don't, we don't care about the humans The humans are the people you spend the most time with. I mean, like, you can watch almost all the Godzilla scenes, you know, in a YouTube thing, like four hours long. Most of the time, it's the human stories about scientists and and reporters and all kinds of stuff like that in society. And it's actually like a really interesting discussion about society. The other type of Godzilla fan is the people who like monsters smashing monsters on miniature sets. The rampage Um, factor is too... The rampage factor, Correct the Beastie Boys video this was very much brought in by the sequel Godzilla Raids Again um, I don't I won't get into the multiple titles because in America it's got Godzilla's counter-attack or some bullshit like that who cares
0: go with the original title <laughs> there's a million um, titles for a million different Godzilla movies most Godzilla's we Picard Maneuver <laughs> The Godzilla
3: maneuver smash Tokyo um, <laughs> and he fights uh, Anguirus which is the first time you're like oh but well I, the first time in this franchise that you had two big monsters punching each other in the face and that became synonymous with the franchise people ex- expect it to be about two monsters just whacking each other to death but the first one is just literally Godzilla walking out of the sea and walking all the way to like the middle of Tokyo in the diet building and just blowing it all up and then a scientist saying I'm gonna use an anti-oxygen thing under the water and sacrifice and, and sacrifice myself at the same time because the weapon is more deadly than the atom bomb and it's all very interesting and I love that kind of shit and that's why I love Godzilla but I still obviously enjoy the 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 boom, you know monsters throws monster and smash into the bridge and this is a highland jig it's just on the moon um <laughs> i mean uh, Criterion Collection recently released a blu-ray of the show era stuff and which is the first the first era of of the um the Godzilla films, and it's it was ridiculous. It's the first 15 films, I want to say, from like 1954 to 1975. And holy god, it's uh, it was expensive. Google it, kids. Um, I was it's also, it's the i mean, you guys have seen this, it's a size like an A3 book, it's huge, it's very cool, it's really be- pretty, but beautiful artifact of like collector's edition, it is Blu ray, yeah, Ephemeral genius. But uh, very much, I, just, I would be happy just with. The first film only on Blu-ray, but that's not how it works in this country, unfortunately. But the point is that I still watch one recently. I was watching um, Mecha Godzilla with my wife, or oh, Godzilla versus Mecha Mechagodzilla, something, and and it's good. It's fun. It's really silly. There's a there's a big line thing in it. So much time is spent basically without Godzilla, and then finally Godzilla turns up. I mean, and, you know, I mean, you know, in the form of Godzilla properly and things like that. And it's running off like an actual plot of what happened last time. You're like, what the fuck is going on? And they keep trying to come back to that every single time. And every reboot you get starts with a serious film. And then it gets silly again. And then you get fucking Son of Godzilla and all that bullshit. It, it, it's very tricky to say you're a Godzilla fan because then it's like saying you're a Matrix fan. Um, mm. Because you're like, oh, you must like all this stuff. It's like, it's 50 years of stuff. Like, or it, Alternatively, it's like saying you're a Bond fan. Now, those films are very that's similar. That's a better but, analogy, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think the nature of saying, it's like, oh, you're a Bond fan. Yes, but just the Timothy Dalton stuff. And you're like, oh, okay. It's like, you're, the Bond, you're a Bond fan. Yes, but just the good ones. Almost no Roger Moore. So the, so the <laughs> Timothy Dalton ones. The Timothy Dalton ones, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's kind of the, kind of the point. It's, 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 it's a long-running, long-surviving franchise. And it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But from a cultural icon for Japan and everything else, it's fucking huge. People know the word Godzilla. People know the name. They know what it looks like. They don't know what it looks like. It's, just, it's a big lumbering behemoth lizard thing. Hence why you end up with the nine nine eight version. I mean, I've, I've been to Japan and several points of my holiday in Japan were solely so I could see Godzilla stuff so like the Tower studio and stuff there's, like that there's
0: a straight up giant godzilla head in the middle of shinjuku in tokyo that's right in the grassary hotel and ridiculous uh, also known as the godzilla hotel because that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> there's a life-size godzilla head just like peeking over the top of the building mm-hmm. it's quite a famous shot of that street people stand on the corner and then you've got like the towering mm-hmm. hotel building and then the godzilla head at the top I'm, it is very I'm, cool i'm not I'm unproud to say that I've got a photo of that. We still. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody in has got that kind of photo. But yeah, the, 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 I can't think of many other things that have such a cultural impact, especially in Japan, obviously, mm. where they literally have a life-size version of them built in real life.
3: Weirdly enough, opposite the hotel, there's a Spider-Man crawling up the wall, like a, big, like a proper Spider-Man life-size yes, statue. Yeah, yeah. It's so weird. Um, <laughs> we purposefully went to Yokosuka, where there is, frankly, nothing. Um, it's like at the end of the tip of where Tokyo sort of is, you go past Yokohama and things like that, and you get to Yokosuka, and there are effectively two pilgrimage points in Yokosuka only. It is a very weirdly American place, because it's where the American naval base is, and so it's a huge, you know, point, strategically and also culturally and stuff. So it's a very interesting different place. There's a place called Dubuita, which is a street which is famous because of Shenmue. That's one thing. The other thing is there's a flower park and you pay like 200 yen, to so like a pound 50. And you go up this long, really, really pretty scenery. And I was like, this is really nice. It was a very hot day. The buzzards are flying around and giant fucking hornets. And it's terrifying Um, and badass, like blue sapphire-like spiders. And there's this amazing, you know, view of this whole place. And you see the sea and things like that, Tokyo Bay. But technically, I think it's still Tokyo Bay. And then you go to the top of the hill, and that's what I was there for. There is a giant fucking slide of godzilla and you <laughs> crawl into his crotch and you slide down his tail and it's a brilliant model google it and i went oh, i dragged everybody all the way there just to see that it was fucking brilliant um so the impact of that, uh, that that character has stuck with me and i think it's partly because not because it's just because it's the huge monster does smash oh yeah it's so cool which is why i'm not a big fan of godzilla king of the monsters what a, what a piece of shit movie that we will, is. We will definitely come back to that motherfucker uh, later season, probably. Because I like what's being said behind it. I like what the monster is being used to say. Hence why Shin Godzilla is fucking amazing. What about you guys? I, mean, I assume you have seen some Godzilla films? I, I It's a weird thing to say, because there's so fucking many of them. There's like 30 yeah. F- yeah. Uh, remake stuff, the Reiwa era, because that's what we're in right now, with the anim- which includes the animated films, which is interesting. Um, and then there's a Hollywood Inverted commas, the Hollywood films, the legendary pictures, monster verse things.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think you've said like pretty much everything (laughs) that needs to be said. Like, just like iconic and does so much of what good film monsters can do, which is can absolutely be the foundation for this slow thoughtful film where the the thing that matters is the metaphor and it's a launching point for a human story about being in contact with something extraordinary and terrifying that reframes your whole existence but also can fight a robot version of itself
3: (laughs) yes god godzilla is the truth godzilla is it's man's folly in every way shape or form thinking you can control something you can't let them fight um <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but uh, there's also the fact that um because it's been around it because it's got this branded recognition it also pushes a lot of visual effects it was amazing for its practical effect at the time it's amazing for the visual effects in terms of cgi that you're getting now and i do think the the the, the western versions, obviously, they obviously got the money to do it the legendary version godzilla 2014 especially looks really really good still and the cell-shaded animated stuff with the um uh Plan the Monster City on the edge of battle and the planet Eater, I want to say. Because I don't really like that style of animation myself, but it was it's pushing the technology forward. It's trying to do new things because it's a big brand and it can do that. But yes, enough of enough of the 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 gorilla whale. Um. <laughs> that's what Gojira
0: means, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you didn't yes. already know that.
3: I did not know that. That's, yeah, that's you not? amazing. Yeah. Kujira yeah. 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 and Gorilla.
0: Yeah. Merged together.
1: <laughs>
3: gorilla Yeah. It looks like neither. From there, should we bounce to, I suppose, because it's probably the closest Jack.
0: Certainly. I will become a lot more modern, shall we say. Yeah. I will talk about the one that I think is a cool monster in an okay movie. Uh, You mentioned kind of American remakes and uh, the the American version of Godzilla and all that kind of stuff. And then this is very much the kind of big rebirth of of big monster movies, I think, in Hollywood as well, Mm. is Cloverfield. Mm. And I think it's an okay film. I think it has a lot of problems. But I really, really like what Matt Reeves was trying to do in particular. I think the J.J. Abrams association with them, like, whatever, it's fine.
3: The marketing is what J.J. Brunson is, is really exactly known for yeah, me. But Matt, yeah. Matt
0: Reeves, as we know, I'm a huge fan of him from the Apes films and all that kind of stuff. Matt Reeves has done some great work. His direction is... Ugh, the shaky cam thing is a bit much. I, I don't suffer from the shaky cam kind of sickness, the travel sickness thing that a lot of people do, but it is still pretty pretty annoying at times. But ignoring the film, the actual monster design itself and the way it is used so sparingly and the idea of doing a found footage... Kaiju movie is a fucking great idea to combine those two genres. We're talking about mashing up like horror genres and monster genres. You take the found footage horror thing of like Blair Witch Project or uh, all that kind of stuff and then chuck a kaiju in there. You're like how have how have we not done this a million times already? This is a brilliant idea and it works really well to kind of keep the suspense going of like you just see it out of the window of a skyscraper from across s- New York basically. And you just see the iconic Statue of Liberty head like crashing through the streets and all this kind of stuff. I hate the little bug monsters. I think yeah. that kind of <laughs> takes away from the whole specialness of the clover thing. And I will get into that in one of my future picks as well, in a in a movie that did it much better. Yeah, I like the clover design. I've always really like been fascinated with like what is this weird kind of praying mantis giant gorilla forward-leaning with these, like, big bulbous things on the side of its head and stuff, because the only real clear shot you get of it is the very last shot of the entire film, where it kind of leans down and eats Hudson, I want to say, or some, some stupid mm, American name. No, um, it's um, just
3: Jack, maybe. How dare you? Because Hud, Hud is the guy who's filming, but then he dies. Oh, Hud dies, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. HUD being obviously heads up display, so. Uh, 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 no. Yeah. But um, yeah, whatever that guy's name is, some, yeah. some just generic name. I remember the like community
0: around like trying to discover its origins and all like the fake websites and all this kind of stuff and trying to work out what it is. Unfortunately, <laughs> I have to talk about this film. I'll be as brief as I can because I love Ten Cloverfield Lane. It gets a bit weird with the ending, but I, I like 10 of Cloverfield Lane*. Like I love Ten Cloverfield Lane*. Cloverfield paradox can fuck all the way off. Yes, it most definitely can. Unfortunately, again, it ties into another film that I think does this a bit better, and I will add a little hint for my second pick. The it's from a parallel dimension explanation, and all this is caused by like a rift in a parallel dimension. In theory, is a really cool idea, but J.J. Abrams very specifically said like, "Oh, it's been asleep, dormant under the sea for." thousands of years and they woke it with this like oil rig thing and that, that you see the oil rig like collapse in the on the news footage in the film and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff more evidence and, and as you said Matt about trilogies that don't make any sense like connecting to each other yep. in the same way that the Star Wars sequels even more so is the Cloverfield cinematic universe One of their phrase that they're just like ah here's a script let's chuck the word Cloverfield on it it'll be fine and they just loosely try and tie them together but the actual monster design, the way it's used in the film, and the way it's kind of like it's not, you know, revealed straight away and it's very teased in a, in a yes. similar yes. 2014 Godzilla kind of way, I really, really love. And it was kind of a thing that reignited my love of kaiji films that I'd kind of just forgotten about for like 10 years. I was like, oh, yeah, big monster movies exist. I had to go back and watch a bunch of those old things. And that's when I kind of started catching up with all the, the Godzilla stuff I'd missed over the previous. 30 years or whatever it was. And uh, yeah, kind of reignited my love for that kind of stuff.
3: I have to confess, now, I I, I, I like Marys a lot. I think ultimately he created something that was very, very good and I enjoyed a great deal. But the monster was very disappointing for me because at the age I was when this came out, I was swept up in the sort of general question of online or what the fuck is it? And there yeah. seemed to be a bit of a running thing online. And once that idea was placed in my head, everything else that came after was shit. And I was like, Oh bollocks. Because for a long time, people said, Oh, it's Cthulhu. And Ooh, I thought, that's Holy cool. fuck. This is going to be a myth ma- It crawls out of the sea. Oh, this, I mean, that's not really what Cthulhu is. That doesn't make any actual fucking sense, but I don't care. I want to see what they're going to do with it. It might be terrible, but let's see where it goes. Wasn't big thing. And it, <laughs> The thing is, that's fine, because I've come to terms of that and I've version watched the film. I still really enjoy the film. I still think it's really, really well made. I still enjoy it. You are entirely correct. The notion of this being a found footage thing was both brilliant and a hindrance, because every time I wanted to see something properly, yeah. it was like, now, again, I think there are two great examples of it being perfected in 2010 and 2014. 2014, Godzilla, Gareth Edwards. What? What are you saying, Matt? That doesn't make any fucking sense. Yes, it does, because... Edwards wanted to ground Godzilla, and almost every time you see Godzilla, it's from a human perspective. There's almost never any flying shots, like, like uh, King of Monsters is all the fucking time. It doesn't just frame it like it's a film, like it's a character. You film it from the ground, so it feels like a real thing that you're being filmed. Same way why Rogue One works the way it does, because it's shot like it's an actual on-the-ground film, so I think it feels a bit more scary, for lack of a better word.
0: It helps that Gareth Edwards' Godzilla is like 400 feet tall or whatever he is. by yes, like, so far the largest of the Godzillas.
3: It is absurd, to be fair. Um, but have you seen Andre? Um, what's it? Overdal. I think his name is Andre Overdal. Have you seen his uh, Troll Hunter? Troll Hunter. Yes, I have. Yeah, Troll Hunter is fucking the great. Norwegian film? Is it Norwegian? That's correct. It's yeah. Norwegian. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. Um, it's same principle. Found footage film about yes. they, this team. Going I think it's going a, a much better film than Cloverfield for the record. It, it is actually, I think. Um, and I think it's presented nicely in the same way because it's much more cleanly shot and because it's a scaled down thing where they're following this hunter in the woods taking out different types of things and it's different kinds of trolls it's really really fun and interesting and, very... and much lower budget as well
0: oh in, yes in, sure. in a good way in that they don't piss about with stuff yeah i feel like they use the budget and the effects where they needed to and they really most kind of definitely. focus on that and, and kind of made the most of what they had to play with but mm. yeah uh, and, and yeah.
3: because of that it, it it means you don't have the huge rampage factor as such but you don't really need it. And it becomes much more scary because of it. But Cloverfield, I think, is a, is, is a genuinely... And I think Jack's right, because there wasn't a lot of it around at the time, except for the remake of King Kong, which we'll go back to, that it, it did say, oh, it's new. And that was kind of the big thing. It was big and it was new.
0: Yeah, I think Clover kind of sets me up for my my future picks. Yeah, I, I will get into, here's how you do that kind of thing in a better way, much more scary and much more interesting.
3: But Field yeah, of Dreams? I, I, yeah, how did you guess? Yeah,
0: that's exactly it.
2: Cloverfield link. They
0: anyway. were paradimensional beings from Field of Dreams. Exactly what I'm thinking.
2: <laughs> they they were never ghosts. They were never baseball ghosts. Yeah, if you see Field Dreams paradox, you'll know that.
0: <laughs> Tim, how about you? What's your first monster pick?
2: So I've gone a lot smaller with my monster choices. Apart from some honorable mentions, I've got no. I got no city stompers. Interesting. You were just talking about the rampage factor. Well, just because something's small, it doesn't mean it can't rampage, Jack. Awkward. That's a I disagree. <laughs> <That's> discrimination. <laughs> <laughs> and and in fact, I, I will demonstrate that with my first pick because my first pick is the Cave Troll from Lord of the Rings. Still pretty beefy. Still pretty beefy. Not 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 Crusher City uh, size.
0: No, cr- crush a few dwarves. Oh, crush, a few, crush a few. Crush a hobbit.
2: Uh, size, yes. A <laughs> mine. A um, mine. I love the design of the cave troll. I agree. I think that's one of my favourite scenes in the, possibly even in the trilogy, the Minds of Moria sequence. The uh, obviously there's a there's a little bit of ropey CGI in there. Uh, looking back two thousands, sp- sp- but yeah. but early 2000s, it was a kind of mind-blowing sequence. Mm-hmm. Watching stuff like the the troll get its chain stuck in the rock and then have Legolas run up the chain to fire oh, an arrow yeah, into its head. Yeah. And uh, I can remember seeing that in the cinema and it just being the best thing that I'd ever seen.
1: <laughs> um,
0: and... I was 10 at the time and I'm totally with you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I think it just has that perfect... There's a level of video game mini boss to it, mm-hmm. but in a way that works perfectly in the film. And I think, you know, in a, in a way is a weird kind of uh, like metatextual feedback loop because, because so much of what we get in, you know, video games and, and stuff of that kind comes from fantasy books that all go back to Tolkien. But it's, it's that, you've, you, you, know what, you know what a fight against the goblins is going to look like, roughly. You know, it's going to be a bunch of blokes in goblin makeup having a sword fight with Aragorn and Legolas mm-hmm. and Gimli, you know, and then the other, and then the hobbits are running around kind of thing. But the, the scale of the cave troll, because it's that much bigger, introduces this whole new factor, uh, and because it dominates the room so much. And just merely taking it out becomes this whole new operation.
0: It's kind of the first time you see the Fellowship really work together and they have to... Exactly. You've got Gimli sliding between its legs, you've got Legolas climbing up the chain, you've got Boromir fighting off the goblins and Aragons over there and like mm-hmm. the hobbits are mm-hmm. doing whatever the hobbits are doing. I mean, doing you've, even, you've
2: even got the hobbits like throwing <laughs> yeah. potatoes at it and whacking a yeah. yeah. uh, yeah. uh, uh, frying pan. You know, um, it, it, is, it is a moment that bonds the group in a way that kind of you exactly want to see in these situations. You want to see... Here comes something terrible. It will make our heroes. It will forge them in the fires of that conflict. And going back to my back to my four quadrants of monster, uh, it is weirdly sympathetic towards the end, as te- as, as scary yeah. as it is to start with. And you you know you are desperately frightened for Frodo when you think he's died, and you know there, there's all these kind of moments of high tension. Mm. The moment when it actually dies, you're like. Oh, this thing's just a slave to the goblins. Like yeah, it, yeah. it, it is something. It, it's it makes basically, those
0: like mournful wails, as not it? like,
2: Yeah, it's it's basically yeah. like yeah. they've got a gorilla that they've got like really angry and just dragged mm, into war. Mm. Um, and you suddenly get that that reversal that so many good monster films do, where something that was a, uh, an object of terror suddenly becomes something that you. You don't want to see in pain, and it does all that in about four minutes. So <laughs> you know, that's a good monster in my in my book.
0: Even the setup with it, you get the the you don't get it revealed straight away. You just hear like everything coming, and obviously like the, the drums and uh, the dark and all and all that kind of stuff. And it all comes in. Boromir, who has been like the arrogant warrior, like I, why are we even going? We're just fucking go, you know, we'll kick it off. How bad can and it be? Give it here, I'll Where punt
2: it into volcano. Exactly. <laughs>
0: said Sean Bean, out of character. Um notorious hard man, Sean Bean. But like, yeah, when Boromir like suddenly turns around, closes the door and goes, Oh, they have a cave troll. It's like, oh, he's he's scared and he's the guy that's like the the cocky kind of warrior type. And you're like, okay, this is a real thing. And then it like explodes through the door, and it's such a great intro. And I love that you get that you don't see it coming. And then he turns around and goes, oh, they have a cave troll. So if you see it just like lumbering up, you're like, OK, cool. It's just some big f- lumbering thing in the distance. The fact that they have it debut as it enters the room and he delivers that line to so set up. He's heard of this thing. It's scary. It's something they should be worried about and they need to work together to fight. He instantly sets up as a threat rather than just being this like, oh, he's this big, lazy, clumsy thing or you know, giant oaf type creature. He instantly sets it up.
2: Yeah, and you don't have that time for it to lose any of that mystique by, like you say, approaching slowly because mm. they're trapped in that room and so as yeah. soon as it appears, it's instantly a huge threat and something that has to be dealt with then. Um, there's none of this kind of like, ah, oh, yes, well, the archers will prioritise that and then if it hasn't been taken out, we'll send what's-his-face on a horse to, to lance it. It's like, no, this is a street fight and this you... you You brought a knife and they brought a cave troll.
0: (laughs) They brought a cave troll.
3: (laughs) I think there is an interesting statement to be said here about Peter Jackson. Uh, If you did this with Michael Bay, the death of the cave troll would be like, Yeah, good! Fuck him! Shit down his neck! Fuck that guy! It would be like, what the fuck is this? And then spray some racist jokes in there as well, because Michael Bay. But the fact that it's Peter Jackson, it actually flits back and forth between tone quite a lot. You have big action sus- sort of suspense drama like oh my god oh like they- it's kicking off oh we're in a small room it then minimizes it really quickly when they're playing the hide and go seek thing around the uh around the pillar where you know it becomes full-on fucking horror movie alien style and um you know furrows go around the cave trolls there but it's like, and again it's seen seeing that in a cinema for the first time with a big ass face going, just fucking oh and then it gets heroic because you saw like a legolas go up and shoot arrows down it's as it went down the top of the skull it's like yeah good 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 then it gets really really mournful and sad because obviously you think frodo is dead you think holy shit and rallies to him and such then you get something incredibly somber as it just does not the thing just, uh, uh, and takes this like bleeding lip it just, like, doesn't know what's happening to it because it's just an animal almost like the the level of sentience isn't as high as the goblins or orcs or whatever and then you have the notion of the music playing and like it's like this is
2: not a thing to be proud of isn't but an achievement. Exactly. Beat the troll. Does, does, yeah. Doesn't play the Final Fantasy VII like you've just won a fight.
3: Swirling a giant sword around your head. So effectively, because of this, you as an audience are sort of uh, instructed by the music, by the sound design, by the character's reactions to go. Ah, I wish we had had to fucking kill that thing. In the same way, if you get like a war film with a big like, war elephant or something, or a horse, mm. and you have to kill the horse, like. That's tragic. That shouldn't have to happen. Fuck the guys. They knew what they were doing. That kind of thing, you know? And then you this sort of somberness of mourning for He's It's like, you know, he's alive and there's a bit of elation. And there's like, then we got, like, we gotta go, gotta go. And the, you know, the suspense and the, the tension kicks back in again. And this is where it gets interesting because I must admit, the big monster of that film, of The Fellowship of the Ring, is technically the Balrog. Of
1: course, That's mm, the big yeah.
3: bastard, cool design, amazing. Like, but so little happens with that, especially in that film rather than the sequel, that the cave has more impact, especially as the level of what was achieved with it, because no, there's, there's no real, what doesn't appear to be any real uh, practical effects with it. It's almost entirely CGI, et mm-hmm. uh, Especially at the time, we weren't, we've seen similar stuff, but not this kind of level of interaction, not this... Level of detail and immersion, and as as Tim pointed out, it just felt so next level. But then, so much of the Lord of the Rings did feel next level because it was happening almost under the radar. No one knew what to expect until it became and then it became one of the biggest things. In the same way that if you see like the troll scene in exactly the same time, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's yes. Stone, which is
2: <laughs> nowhere near as good.
3: No, it's not good. Never not good at all. Troll
0: in the bathroom. Troll oh, in the dungeon.
3: Troll in the yeah. dungeon, sorry, yes. No, you. sorry, yeah, yeah. But it's, 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 and then you see the thing in the butter, and, and it, it this, even like, Grappie, and like the third, fourth, or fifth film of a fucking Har, uh, Hagrid's half giant thing, half giant yeah. brother. You know, this looks shit. It looks shit at the time. It looks worse now, fucking hell. But the point is that it achieved a lot with what it was doing.
2: and I think it made an impact for everyone who's seen it, I think. Matt, that brings us around to you again. What's, uh, what's second in the, the monster chamber? Second is the. Actual
3: king, and Mm -hmm. I don't mean this because there was a fight. Because I mean, there have been a few. Well, there's one classically in the in the uh, the show era stuff of King Kong versus Godzilla, and that's very different. And there'll be a new one coming out at some point, maybe this year, maybe next year. Who Mm. fucking knows? COVID nineteen. But the truth is, he's called King Kong, and that was one of the. If we talk about you know the idea of. First monster movies, that's that as Jack discussed earlier, that's a different question. First really big important one, that's most definitely King Kong. That was because that film gave me so much. It was in the 30s film, so I had adventure sort of stuff because I was reading into my sort of like it was late 90s. We were getting things like um, adventure serial rival like Rocketeer and the Shadow and Phantom the and things like that. The so Mummy and stuff like the that. The Mummy, exactly. It, the 30s was like, this is fucking cool. Look at these designs. And I was watching The Untouchables, you know, and again, this is this this 30s era. This is cool. And I was falling into a lot of that stuff. So it had like this sort of very specific look and feel and style to it as well as having a big ass huge monkey monster, this huge gorilla <laughs> in the woods, as it were. But also on top of that, tons of fucking dinosaurs. I don't know those dinosaurs in King Kong. I know King Kong is a thing, but... I loved it. It was great. And King Kong is is important because talk about like you know Godzilla being the big one and one of the first ones. King Kong's eighth the one of the world. King Kong came first in my mind. King Kong is it. Um, if you want to talk about the big granddaddy monster, it's King Kong. Um, it's the stepping out of we're doing. You know uh, all the universal horror style monsters and what we've got with the uh, the gothic revival. It's like nope. We're doing something modern at the time at least and contemporary. And that's a big fucking terrible thing. And obviously you still have in the 30s that sense of the world map isn't entirely complete. The life mm. adventuring is just about winding down. Tombs are being opened in Egypt, that kind of thing. But there's still that mystery, that air of there's an unknown, uncharted island. It's like, oh shit, this is cool. And I love the idea of King Kong. Now, King Kong... Peter Jackson King Kong because I was gonna say there's almost no sympathy to King Kong the original King Kong. Um, he is just a big fucking gorilla who is a mon he's he, he's an animal literally an animal from a from a, a bygone era this this time you know that that, that uh, has remained untouched by an extinction event etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's that's fine I enjoyed that a lot it's it's very much of its time and it's a product as such then you have a few other versions. You have the 1976 film, which I saw shortly after seeing the 30s one at an age I probably shouldn't have seen it because it was kind of...
2: Weirdly horny. Yeah.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Climbing the the two towers, and I don't like it in the fucking slightest at all. You're very hard-pressed to find anyone who genuinely likes that film unless it's for nostalgia purposes. Um, So we'll move past that one. Fuck that one. Bridges couldn't save it. Whatever. And then you get to the Peter Jackson one. And I like the Peter Jackson one, 2005, I want to say. Um, I like it quite a lot. I like to put lots of things back in that we were sort of seeing in the original film, that the dinosaurs things and the bugs and all that sort of stuff and etc. I felt I I thought the characterizations were good. I thought the casting was really interesting. I thought the parodies of the film itself were really good. And since they were doing literal recreations of the scenes from the original film, it's a very much a product of like 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 with Lord of the Rings, a product of love, and it makes the the gorilla human in a weird way. I much hate to say that. And again, putting Circus behind that mocap, jeez, that's fucking, what a move. Because that that time with the, with that ape is just genius. Having said that, because Pete Jackson loved it so much, it's a fucking bloat beast. So mm. much in it. It's like three hours on Fairy Flowers. It's so hard to want to actually watch it. And there's so much stupid CGI stuff that you see later in The Hobbit and all that sort of stuff with, you know, running in, in between those dinosaur legs and, oh, yeah, God. <laughs> There's a lot that really, really works. There's some really beautiful stuff, like just skating on the, on, the, on the frozen lake in Central Park.
2: Some really nice stuff in there, but it's hard to watch. It is the rare film that makes me watch a fight between King Kong and two T-Rexes. And yeah. at a certain point, I start going, so when's this going to end?
0: Yeah. If you make that boring, it's pretty impressive. That's and the yeah, thing. That, that running down the valley scene just... Or they're all just fucking slapstick comedy bollocks. It's like, oh, yeah, it's yeah. the worst.
3: It's the near misses and the saves that make me really annoyed because none of it feels real. And and Darrow being thrown around during that that, that sort of T Rex style fight. I know they're not really whatever, but you know what I mean. That that thing, it's just it's just fucking it out, outstays its welcome. It needed a really heavy hand editing it, and it would have been really really good. But I, I still enjoy it. And then you have Kong Skull it's Island. fucking long, isn't it? I think it's like three and a half hours. It's really yeah, fucking long. It's too long. And then you have Kong Skull Island and. We have a we have a bit of a spectrum or a range on, on here where Tim enjoys it, I believe. I do. I'm pro I'm pro Skull Island. Yep. Jack is fine. You can take it or leave it, I believe. Yeah, yeah so right. I do not like it. And I think stylistically it's really good. I love the Vietnam setting, it's such a great idea. I like some of the fight stuff, I think it's really good. I think there's a lot of incoherence I don't like about it. But as far as the monkey is concerned, King Kong himself, mm-hmm. he's pretty cool. Bit too big, but obviously you have to make him beard to fight Godzilla. You have to just keep scaling everything up
0: because it's bigger and better than oh, ever. So everything's oh, four hundred feet tall,
3: and then yeah. you get Godzilla, the monster planet planet eater thing, where it's like, okay, now we're gonna have one that's look, look at the size comparison. It's fucking It's like mountain size, and like that's stupid. Now, kind <laughs> of amazing. But it's 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 spectacular, but it's still stupid. Um, so yeah, Kong Skyland. So King Kong is one that sort of hangs around for a long time because it has been around. For so long. I mean, we are approaching nearly, I mean, nearly 100 years. 90 years of yeah. King Kong is crazy. That's so insane. Um, and I still think the original really holds up. I think it still holds up really, really well. And it's it has a lot of, a, a, a bit of the mournful thing. When he's, right at the end, when he's falling off the, the, um, the Empire State Building, the planes have attacked him and he's finally dead. I think at that point, you have the whole, oh, oh that's a bit sad but not well, you get you it. get you get the classic it was to yeah <laughs> exactly and again there we go the fact that we can all quote that shit almost mm. off the back it's yeah um, and it's a, it's a character that I think will keep coming back because at the end of the day as much as Godzilla is a really interesting allegory king kong is very close to us because mm. it's of course ape it's human features and that sort of thing and there's a lot of relatability and the thing that the the sort of creature feature things that they did with that and and uh circus and his performance, you want? I mean, you don't have the lusty Jessica Lang relationship where he just needs to peel off her clothes and look at her tits. I'm a fucking look at you, grubby <laughs> Kong. <laughs> but I think that that that's always a monstrous, horrifying. But just the idea that it's a creature that, for lack of a better word, loves in the same way that a pet loves a human kind of thing. I think yeah. that's a, a a connection that's really nice and a protection thing. So yeah, Kong, King Kong, in various iterations, Kong is everlasting.
2: I I would love to see I know we're not going to get, obviously we've got Kong versus Godzilla on the slate still, so we're not going to get a a new version beyond that anytime soon. I I would love to see someone like Jordan Peele do like a post-colonialist reading on King Kong, because I think that would be fascinating to see unpick some of the shall we say, unfortunate overtones. Oh, there's uh, tons of fucking heavy races in there. Yeah. yeah. Which, which are set up in the first and no pre- subsequent versions have really got into addressing that much. Which, when you look at something that's like produced in 2005, you're like,
3: hmm, unfortunate. Yeah. Again, Peter Jackson recreates, like, almost the, the sort of tribal scenes on stage where Kong is being unveiled. And you're like, yeah, I get what you're doing. You're showing us the thing from the film. Cool. I don't need to see that again though. I know you like the whole it's the thirties, they were
2: different back then. It's like,
3: yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, like King Kong is is amazing. And like you say, the the, the original, you know, for, for as much as it has aged, it still holds up. Yes. Like that the the shots, the the giant gate and just waiting to see what lies beyond it, you know, there's a reason that that is essentially what Spielberg did in Jurassic Park.
3: Yes. You guys got in there, King Kong? Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a reason he's king. So, with that dealt with and covered sort of old classic, Jack, have you got another modern one for us?
0: I certainly have. And speaking of king, there's a fucking segue for you.
3: Oh, I see we were done there. Very good. Let's talk about The
0: Mist, shall we? Very interesting. Based on the novella by Stephen King. Mm-hmm. There's your segue. Liz. <laughs> <laughs> And I mentioned a film that basically takes the interdimensional bullshit of Cloverfield and kind of does it a bit better, in my opinion, in terms of the uh, the monsters and the, the the madness of it all. Yeah, That's sure. The Mist. And it goes full. I felt like Cloverfield kind of, like I said, it was very mixed messages and JJ Abrams and the writers and the directors were all just like, mm, it's a thing from the sea. Oh no, maybe it's not. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. You mentioned the Cthulhu connection, Matt. Yes. Well- the Mist is a whole it's Stephen King does Lovecraft. It's a full it, yeah, fucking it is. madness. It's it's a town in Maine because of course it is because Stephen <laughs> King. And this mist descends upon the town and these a variety of creatures and I'm going to be cheeky and kind of pick them all but one okay. in particular is my yeah, favorite sure. that is the 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 least dangerous in theory of them all. But you get the little ones that are like there's these little the scorpion fly mm-hmm. creatures—they're they're real gross. They're kind of like the like a flying version of the uh, the version of uh, yeah. They're kind of kind of like the things from Cloverfield. Then you get really like the things from Cloverfield are the, the gray widowers, the little spider-like yeah. creatures. You get a to go back to like Jurassic Park, the Terra buzzard, which is kind of a real Lovecraftian pterodactyl creature, mm-hmm. and you also get the Arachna lobster. Because of course you do, and it's this <laughs> like fifty foot tall praying mantis lobster monster. That's kind of kind of like the Cloverfield monster, kind of like the Clover with these big like yeah, yeah things and multiple limbs and a big gross face and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, it kind of kind of chops people in half, which which is great. Mm-hmm. The the two I kind of want to focus on are. The, the the most silly, and then the most Lovecraftian and cool, and my favorite, as nicknamed in the film itself, the Frank Darabont directed film, the tentacles from Planet X, <laughs> which are these like squid, octopus tentacle things and like claws and teeth and suckers and little mouths, and it's just the most Lovecraftian gross worm creature you've ever seen <laughs> in your life, and they come snaking in under like a garage doorway. Under this metal slider, and just murder Norm and like drag him away. And oh, it's just real gross. It reminded me of the scene you mentioned Independence Day earlier of the uh, the Brent mm. Spiner scene where mm. he's like <coughs> taken by the tentacles and like slammed up against the glass and all that kind of mm. stuff. Mm-hmm. It has a real kind of like tentacle horror kind of vibe to it that really freaked me out. And it also like when it's cut off, it m- melts into like a weird, gross-smelling acid goo. <coughs> There's kind of, I guess, maybe a xenomorph reference, I don't know. But yeah, it's it's a real weird kind of thing. And all these creatures are so completely different and weird. And like, some of them are very aggressive, some of them are not so aggressive. And there's kind of of the impression of like, as you mentioned with the cave troll, these are just animals defending themselves or looking for food or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily out to get us. And the novella kind of explores that a bit more. They have slightly different ways of handling it the novella is like this is the end of the world the mist is here yeah that's it America is (laughs) fucked basically (laughs) it's taken Maine and you hear like news reports and stuff and it's like America's done for it's basically going to spread across the world the the new age of the interdimensional monsters is here basically whereas in the movie in a spoilers for Mm. the mist for a what 15 year old film whatever it is by now it is this like Very depressing scene where essentially it's kind of like a suicide pact and they all like, oh my God, it's the end of the world. We said we'd do it. And like start like killing the group and all this kind of stuff. And then the US army arrives and they fight them, fight them off with their flamethrowers and start saving the world and all this kind of stuff. It's like, okay. I like the, you know, we killed ourselves to save ourselves. Oh no, wait, we've been saved moments later kind of twist. It's been done before, but I kind of like that as a kind of really depressing ending theme. But the one you see, the, the monster that you see in the briefest of glimpses that is the most Lovecraftian thing I think I've ever seen on screen is the impossibly tall creature, which is, first of all, a very Lovecraftian title. (laughs) because <laughs> yes, they're always like the thing that walks in the night and all this kind of stuff <laughs> also known as the behemoth is the like a thousand foot tall whatever it is 500 foot tall thing that is just like seems to be mm-hmm. completely non-violent I guess apart from the fact that it's just wandering around it's just mm-hmm. running, wandering around crushing cars and buildings underneath its feet and stuff and mm-hmm. just the sense and scale of it is just epic. And the fact that you just see this glimpse of it like walking through the mist and it just walks off into the distance, like that's really cool. And I I love that moment of like, I'd, you know, I'd mentioned before I'd kind of read some Lovecraftian horror stuff and then really got into it when uh, I played the game Bloodborne. I didn't see, I saw the mist shortly after that and in my (laughs) delve into like Lovecraftian movies and stuff like that. And that moment was like, Wow, that is that is some serious, serious like Cthulhu style horror stuff. This giant tentacled, unknowable creature that is just covered in mouths and tentacles and limbs and stuff, and it's just mm-hmm. this imposing, terrifying force that again you only see from a distance in the mist briefly, and it still just casts an amazing impression on on screen.
3: It's because it's it's just a very cool terror, and again because it's mostly shot, you know from down low, human perspective of what it looks like. The same that the Brachiosaurus in Jurassic Park. And it's like, oh, uh, <laughs> before it comes up in the tree, as it were. It, 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 God it, bless it, you. <laughs> I think it's, um, I mean, I think this, I, we'll come back to this later because I know that uh, Tim has some, some things to say about some of these. There are certain directors and uh, cinematographers and individual effects people who don't want to give you a clean picture of it, who want to give you a... Just shoot it in a very different way, like either a nature documentary style, not too far, not John Favreau Lion King style, but go just enough that it feels real. Too many shots shoot these things like they're people, and sometimes that loses a lot of the magnitude of what you're actually looking at and the terror of what that
2: could possibly mean. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think we, we we've been talking about the human perspective on things, and mm, mm. the mist is is just such a great example of that because it is just that confusion and terror at what the world has become and and that that sense of just kind of unknowable dread
0: which of course is a huge theme in all of like the Cthulhu mythos and mm. that kind of stuff is this all of these elder gods and elder beings and old creatures from unknowable spaces are these indescribable multi-limbed multi-eyed amorphous, horrifying blobs that drive you insane just by looking at them and all this kind of ridiculous shit. And it was the first time I'd kind of seen that put on screen because I think a lot of problems with those kind of things, if it's an un- it's an unknowable, indescribable thing, by putting it on screen, you are by ne- definition giving it a form and giving it a shape and making sense. it knowable and making it describable because you yeah. you can describe a thing that's in front of you and whereas kind of doing it with the behemoth you can describe it but they keep it vague enough that you don't know what it's doing what its purpose mm. is it seems to have like so it has like these bony tenderly things almost like claws lining its stomach and there's like loads of the little scorpion fly creatures flying around it maybe is mm. it birthing them who knows I don't know, maybe it's like they live in its little like belly nest thing and it's a <laughs> real like walking hive of horrible monsters.
3: Could be like or birds on just a rhino. Like it has a. Has a like, exactly, or, yeah. yeah.
0: Maybe it's just like a little parasite thing and they're just like nibbling a l- the little claw, the belly claws or something like The Lovecraftian rhino and bird situation. <laughs> Who knows? But yeah, I just like that you know nothing about this thing and all of the monsters are kind of a bit silly or I, I think the tentacles from Planet X are pretty silly but just by the name. And uh, the other ones kind of work, and like I said, it's kind of like the the smaller things from Cloverfield kind of done in a different and better way, in my opinion, because I think Cloverfield should have just focused on the large one rather than kind of diluting it with the little ones, whereas The Mist, because it casts such a wide net of like, here's all these weird, creepy, indimensional beings, you kind of get away with it a little bit mm. more, and I think that will work a bit better. And like, the... Scor—I think it's the scorpion flies. I'm trying to remember now. One of them's just attracted to light, like moths are, basically. Mm. And then it's not until one of the terror buzzards comes in and smashes a window that they all get inside and then start like stinging people and eating people and stuff just because mm. they're in the way, basically. Yeah. And you really get in it it's like, oh, these are animals. And we—I think I had a much bigger discussion in terms of philosophical stuff, but like sentience is an interesting thing for monsters as well. Let like, me we yeah. talk about the cave yeah. troll. Yeah. You get the sense that, oh, this is just an animal not even doing what it's told, but like being enslaved, as you mentioned him, or like being Mm -hmm. forced to do this thing. It doesn't want to fight these hobbits and fight these humans and all this kind of stuff, but it has no other choice. And the sentience of these creatures is kind of like, they're just trying to get some food, trying to find some light, trying to find some shelter. Maybe they have no idea what's going on. They're not like coming in as invaders or anything like that. It's like, we don't know what's going on. We're just here. Oh, yeah. Cool Earth. Let's just mm-hmm. eat some things and see what happens. Like what any animal would do, basically.
2: It's, it's a fascinating because, like you say, it, it manages to really strike that balance between that unknowable Lovecraftian horror and the feeling that there's a real, almost like an ecosystem to these things. Like yes. there, is, an, there yeah. is a relationship between all the different creatures. Yeah. Um, and
0: they all fulfill different roles, which I think is cool. Yeah.
2: You know? And it's that, like, it's, it's, it's such a perfect setup to just shroud it all in mist because it enables you to do both of those things because it, it, it lets you think up these relationships and establish that world, but then you keep it behind that curtain of the mist, mm. and so everything is lent that extra level of mist hurry. Oh. Um, <laughs> oh, that that you would otherwise be robbed of. You know, if you saw the behemoth just stomping around the countryside, it would still be an intimidating monster, but it would very quickly lose that sense of strangeness. Mm. Um, but just having that shape <clears throat> and that brief glimpse in, in the fog mm. Uh, mm, it d-
3: does so much for it. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's the Jaws argument. Once the shark is out of the box, putting the shark back in the shark box is very difficult. So if you reveal everything, you're like, and that's definition. That's literally, we've, we've described it, in, and they can't call it can't cause unknowable if you've given people... I mean, even like um, with, with Clover, you don't really get a good panoramic sweeping shot of like, oh, the full reveal. And yeah. I, re- I
0: remember, this is how mm-hmm. much of a nerd I was back then, I remember Googling like full reveal of clover yes. monster whatever it was and just saw, like all these fan diagrams like oh the bottom half is just tentacles it looks like a spider it's made of bees like you know, all this crazy shit and like there wasn't an official drawing of it mm. until somebody eventually i think they dug out some concept art or something like that it's like this is what it looks like like okay cool but like i quite like that we didn't know and mm. I know I was the one searching it out because I'm a terrible person,
3: but well, like, we do this. Yeah, we? yeah. Humans want to know these things. That's the thing. <laughs> it's what it's what horror always te- teach us. Humans want to see. Even if it's like oh, I don't want to. I don't want to look. I don't want to look. And then you peek through your fingers because you do want to look. You kind of don't want to know, but you do want to know because humans mm. are inquisitive by nature. So you, if, if even if you have hidden these things, it's the same way. They're like, and not and not in the sense of. Oh, the plot didn't make enough sense and didn't show me enough, and I need to understand to actually understand how it works. You're like, no, no, no. I, you've piqued my interest. I want more, which is where a film needs to say, good. Now we're stopping. And it, to be fair, it did. Uh, you know, sequels sort of aside. Tim, how about you?
0: What's your next pick for a lovely monsters of cinema?
2: So we've spoken about the king of monsters. Yep. I'm going to speak about the daddy of monsters. Oh, which is. Know. Mr. Guillermo del Toro. Um, and he is someone... We've just spoken about how effective it is to keep your monsters hidden. He is someone who is not at all afraid to just straight-up show you your monsters mm-hmm. uh, and still have them remain incredibly effective. Um, so my official pick here is the Pale Man from Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah,
3: yeah
2: a um, <clears throat> Who is absolutely terrifying. And yet, you there's there's very little in terms of like hiding him away because he's it's, you know it's it's the reversal of how we normally treat monsters. The power man starts out perfectly motionless, and the we as the audience approach him, um, yes, and yes. Uh, you know there there's there's that kind of inversion of the normal kind of. The sense of the monster sneaking around. We are there as Ophelia kind of enters his lair, and she is the one who, in a way, she breaks the rules, she transgresses, and she, yes, yes. but she is the one who is sneaking around his home until she disturbs him. And it's such a fascinating inversion of that kind of traditional monster dynamic and the tension that builds up in that scene. And of course the amazing design and the amazing uh, acting work being done by Doug Jones. Oh, of course yeah. it's
0: Doug oh, Jones. Yeah. Doug Jones is the best.
2: <laughs> He's so good. The the, the, the the precision of the movements, the control that he has. Um and He's
0: that slobbing about with his like horrible yeah. wing things and just like, bleh, bleh, bleh.
2: yeah, and just the just the horrific design that, that Del Toro came up with. Actually, so I, I, was, I was living in America when Pan's Labyrinth came out, but I'd actually, I was back visiting the UK uh, and went to see it in the cinema and really, really loved it, and then went back to America and it came out there a little bit later. And I said to my housemates, oh, we should go see this film, Pan's Labyrinth, and they were like, is it scary? Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's not really scary. It's like a sort of dark it's like kind of disturbing and there are some violent bits and it's kind of like a dark fairy tale. And they were like, okay, that sounds fine. And we went to see Pan's Labyrinth and they were, they they were terrified throughout the whole thing. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that like, you know, obviously we have different ideas of what's scary. (laughs) Uh, And, and then, uh, and then we were waiting to get the subway back to our apartment and, I took the opportunity to get my pen out, draw eyes You're on both my hands, and then come up behind one of my housemates doing the pale man thing uh, <laughs> and give her the shock of her life. And we talked about,
0: like, oh, we, we know the quote from King Kong, as soon as you do the hand in front of your eyes thing and do the like creepy wiggle <laughs> of the fingers, yeah. everyone knows what that is. It's such yeah. an nice- Even if you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, mm. you know that moment and that pale man reveal with like, oh, he's blind. Oh, no, wait, he's not. Now he's eating fairies. There yeah, goes your childhood, so... motherfuckers. It's like, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it's such an iconic moment.
2: Yeah, and D- Del Toro obviously has created this kind of amazing mm. library of modern cinematic monsters, which um, I have a few more other picks there, uh, which we'll dive into a bit later. But, yeah. but before I spend an entire podcast just talking about him, <laughs> uh, let's... Uh, Jump back to you, Matt, and have another one of yours. Sure, sure.
3: So, in a review recently for the Lee L film *The Invisible Man*, I mentioned that *The Invisible Man* is my favorite Universal monster, and that's really, really strange to say because he's not a monster; he's just a dude who turns in, who has turned. I should say he doesn't have the ability to turn it on and off. He has turned invisible. He is a um... he's some kind of hollow man. Oh, we'll come back <laughs> to that motherfucking thing in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yes, he he's a man of science, he is a chemist, he has made himself invisible, and he's also a bit of a psychopath. And so, effectively, he has delusions of grandeur, and he's a bit of a comic book villain, really. It's it's genius, and it's brilliant, and it's exceptionally well done. Claude Rains' performance is absolutely astoundingly good. The visual effects of the time are great, and if you think about being in the 30s, and they only had, like, the cameras, it's so weird to think how they shot this thing. It's also very, very, very fucking funny. Largely unintentional for the actors and the performances. But uh, I do love Claude Rains. All right, you fools. And it's just so theatrical, so 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 over the top. Um, but The Invisible Man, let's face it, when anybody says to you, oh, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? There are two responses. Oh, I'd love to fly. Oh, I wish I could fly. And what's the second one? Be invisible. <laughs> and flying is always just a it's, it's wish fulfillment. It's always like, oh, I want to do something that I can't physically do, but I'd love to do. But when you get to do the invisible part, You say, oh, why? Why do you want to be invisible? And you start drilling down some really weird psychological shit real (laughs) fucking fast. It comes down to why? So I can watch people be naked or rob a bank. That's almost the two things people come up with if they're being honest with themselves. Or want to say, oh, people talk about when I'm not in the room. You you, you, You reveal so much about a person's psyche. Whereas if you say, oh, what would you do if you could fly? I'd go over there. Cool.
1: <laughs>
3: Sounds. A bit so, was a, up, <laughs> and then I'd go down. Yeah, pretty much. I love the idea that some. So it has been pointed out that if if you if humans were able to fly, it would be at the same speed and arguably height that you could breathe. So it would be maybe maybe twenty feet off the ground, uh, and you go as fast as you can run. So it'd just be a bit annoying. You're not Superman. You're not going super speed and super strength and super durability. You're not you know that kind of flight. You're just just basically running but at a slightly
0: higher yeah, height. Just flight without any of the other stuff is not as exciting as it'll no. fly at the speed of sound. What and tear your face skin off <laughs> and just, and spontaneously compassed. Have fun.
3: Yeah. whereas invisibility oh, that becomes interesting. And but then it's the also the practicality of well, how do cars know to stop for you? People just walk into you, It's say, like, Oh, well, I guess. So the Invisible Man, the original 30s version. I fucking love it. It's a great film. It's just amazing, amazing practical effects. Really cool story, and genuinely scary. But you can't see this killer, and you don't know what the fuck he's going to do. And he tells people what he's going to do. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it's just great. And I think it taps into a very human thing very quickly. Then you have two different versions. Now, there's been lots of Invisible Man uh, v- v- iterations. Tons of them, in fact. I think John Carpenter had a stab that was not that great. Two that stick in my mind are Hollow Man and The Invisible Man. This year's one. Hollow Man is shit. (laughs) Hollow Man and The Invisible Man have two very... the, 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 The very definition of a male and female gaze and how a film is presented on screen. I also think it's very, very interesting that the way that... 2000's Hollow Man and 2020's The Invisible Man, despite being the exact same principle, effectively, are are a perfect example of male and female gaze on film, in the cinema. Now, not to get too, you know, film school on this whole thing, but the idea is that a story has obviously multiple perspectives based on your own background, upbringing, ethnicity, gender, all kinds of stuff, because of course it fucking does. Everything in real life does anyway. So, you know, fiction would obviously be the same thing. And... When you're portraying a film through a male gaze or for a male gaze, what you are doing is showing the world how a man would see it. So for example, in in in, in Hollow Man, Kevin Bacon is a brilliant scientist and he's, and he's he's not appreciated in his time and meh 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 meh. And he'll show everybody and he does, he goes invisible, but that power goes too far and suddenly he's a oh, rapist. And it's like, <laughs> oh. Okay, and he also likes to murder. And it's like, well, actually, that is the actual premise of the original Invisible Man, the idea that unhinged and unchecked and, and without the conditions of society, people will go to their base urges and instinct. It's always something disgusting in the base. Um, and that's kind of the the illustration of the horror angle. And but the, the thing is, the way it's shot, it's it, sometimes it's very POV. So, for example, we're not seeing it from the victim's perspective. It's like, you know, someone's just asleep on a chair and it's like, this lecherous man comes towards you and you are the lecherous man so rather than being like oh god what's gonna to happen to it you're like yeah good open it top up show me Ooh. the cgi squeezing a booby. and it's like that's weird <laughs> <laughs> someone's got like a warp effect on a tit that's that's unusual um and then in the invisible man which i fucking love as much as i love the original Man.
0: i remember man. you saying that yeah i was surprised at how much because it, it was something that just doesn't register on my radar like oh it's a Modern horror film, whatever. Don't really care. I've never given a shit about Hollow Man or The Invisible Man. That's not really a, a thing that's, you know, something for me to pay attention to. And then you were like, it's one of the best films of the year. And I was like, what? Really? Really? We watched it on our,
3: um, yeah. was it what uh, what we watched recently? We talked about it, was it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so the, the idea is that after the whole dark universe bullshit, and that was all scrapped, and then they said, well, hang on, we'll give this property to different directors and things, and we'll go in a different direction. Whatever, kind of like the, I I guess a really, really rushed advanced version of the DCU, where they're like, let's just let them do their own fucking thing. It doesn't have to worry about even more rushed version, yeah, Mm -hmm. great, yeah, entirely, yeah. But my god, it came out good. It came out so good, and the main character is not the Invisible Man. The Invisible Man is the monster. He's the threat. He's the thing coming for you. And because it's from a female gaze, it's incredibly fucking tense because it literally shows the idea of Mm. what happens if you had an abusive spouse or partner they were so powerful in the sense of like their money and connections and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and being a white dude at the end of the day, that they could become invisible and convince everyone that you are insane. It's just like gaslighting the movie. And it's stupidly well done. The, the visual effects are fantastic. Obviously uh, we kind of nailed that invisible look. Now we nailed it kind of in the eighties because <laughs> of the nature of moving a green screen. suit. So it's, it's a morph. Suit, I should say it's quite easy. Um, but the way it's used Oh my god, it's so tense. We were talking about um, uh, tension in the in the listener feedback episode. I should have mentioned Invisible Man because there's some there's some beautiful moments. Where the pa- camera pans to nothing, and it will sit Whoa, there for a few minutes, and then goes back. And suddenly you're like, oh, don't pan over, I don't <laughs> want to see anything. I mean, you don't see anything. Oh, don't pan back, I don't want to see anything. Yeah. <laughs> and equally, it will frame things and have focus pulls for people who aren't there. It's it's genius. It will, it's it's the kind of filmmaking stuff that is 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 just glorious. And again, I think that's a much stronger film, because rather than just being a horror film, straight, clear cut and you know, effectively quite boring and mundane, it, it it says something about our society at this time, about this unseen killer, as it were. So I think for that reason alone, The Invisible Man is very much alive and well. And I'm very well, not necessarily surprised because they've been trying to revamp with Dracula and the Mummy and Frankenstein over and over and over. And it's like, you do have quite a few of these. You know that, right? And obviously the closest one, weirdly enough, <laughs> Best Picture winner of A Shape of Water with their version of arguably Gilman. It's just, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I would say those two should be in the cinematic universe. And I know they're not, because obviously they're completely different films, but I love the idea that they're tangentially linked in the same way that the, um, the Universal Monsters were. Right, so you guys still haven't seen it, I because obviously, let's face it, it pandemic. It's, it, it literally yeah. came out <laughs> just before uh, all this happened. Um, I know it's on it like came out um, in January, something like that. I think thereabouts about yeah, January, yeah. February. Uh, it's now on like uh, streaming media for purchase, I believe, and it'll eventually become you know the usual channel sort of mm-hmm. stuff. But yeah, as, as Jack said, I assume you guys were like just as most of us, largely uninterested.
2: I, it was one I, I'd, because I'm not a huge horror person. I I hadn't uh, thought about seeing it in the cinema, but it was one that was definitely on my radar. Just because I had I'd seen the trailer and thought it looked like a really interesting take, and Elizabeth sure. Moss is usually really good. Always very reliable. She's great. She's so good. So it was cert- it was certainly something I was interested in seeing, um, and mm. I think I'll definitely watch it when it comes out on uh, you know uh, Netflix or whatever. Um, sure, sure, Yeah, and I think it just it, it just like kind of going and and looking at the fact that we've ha- we've got that, and then we've got. Hollow Man. And it shows, mm. even though the characters are quite similar in that they're both yes. awful men, uh, and it and it leans heavily <laughs> into the kind of sexual angle of Invisible Man, it shows how versatile that can be, especially in the hands of good filmmakers. Like what what can be quite schlocky in one person's hands can suddenly become this incredibly Intense, like psychological thriller, uh, in another yes. person's.
3: Um, a, a lot of genre film critics and and theorists and scholarly individuals with regards to cinema very rarely like to talk about fantasy, science fiction, and well, science fiction less so. But mm-hmm. fantasy and horror, especially, they're like, well, they're not good enough. They're trash. They're they're disposed. And action is the same thing. Action and, um, and and science fiction is always a tricky one because sometimes there are science fiction films where they're like, well, this is the kind of science fiction that we like, as opposed to all of it. But uh, no, you're right, Tim. I think it, does, it is a testament to, to the kind of filmmaking and writing where you're like, no, you can make anything good. You can make anything that's... I mean, uh, there is a, a, a theory, an almost sequelizer-like theory, Ooh. that you can, you can take any type of movie, no matter how trashy or ridiculous or underdeveloped, like Birdemic or something fucking awful, and like, yeah, you can make that a good film. <laughs> The birds exists
1: yeah (laughs) and and
3: zombie movies exist you could literally pair those quite well if you are a good writer and director so it's a case of pairing the right people with the right project so jack from a very human element i'm assuming you're bringing us something very uh how can i phrase this beyond the human spectrum something that is not a bloke (laughs) i mean
0: yeah i'm glad you added that last little bit because uh Weirdly enough, this monster is very relevant to discussing like political issues and things like that. And it's yeah, kind of yeah. a very much a used as a tool for discussion of socioeconomic problems and political problems and military occupations of countries and all this kind of stuff. I'm talking about the the creature. It's it's never given a name in the actual in the film. In the film, the host, the big slimy sewer monster thing with the multiple mouths and the tentacles and the big tail and the thing and yeah I think guomol is, is the Korean word for monster or something like that so yeah. that's kind of been been coined by the fans and things like that but the actual monster itself isn't given a name which I kind of love it is just this force of nature this this beast that appears out of well not out of nowhere from under a bridge <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's the opposite of what we were talking about with especially what i talked about with the clover field monster the clover and especially the lovecraftian stuff where you keep it off screen for as much as you can Um, i mentioned the behemoth my favorite thing from the mist like that thing is on screen for a matter of seconds basically and it's just this towering presence and that's it and you don't get a chance to like study it in detail and all this kind of stuff the the beast from the host is like on screen basically straight away and it, it it drops into the water and then it cuts and you kind of pan across and it is just running across the like the promenade towards the main character and you're like, oh, this is just straight up, there's no hiding this thing and it's a completely different approach to telling that kind of, kind of, like I said, the, the, not the kaiju because it's not really big enough for a kaiju but that kind of force of nature, natural disaster kind of fueled monster and back to our boy, Bong Joon-ho. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and it is just like this really cool, weird design that they're not afraid to show. And I really appreciate that. Granted, the CGI, if you look back at it now, I rewatched it for this episode. It's not ideal, but it's its a, it's it, a 14 it's, year it's old enough. film.
3: It's, um, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. It's terrifying enough. There are some kids that get trapped in its like little sewer lair kind of thing. And it starts coughing up like skulls and skeletons and bones and shit. And they're just lurking in the dark, covered in goo and shit. And oh, and it's just like bleh, bleh, spewing out these, you literally see this like bile covered skull, like hit a few inches in front of the kids. It's like, oh yeah. my God, that's terrifying. And it's got this, um, not to stick with the Lovecraftian thing. It's got this like otherworldly, weird, creepy thing to it. But then if you're following the film, uh, it, it's actually kind of man-made by American scientists, which is based on a whole thing that Mm. america did way back when and it's based on a real event when they dumped a bunch of formaldehyde and stuff into a river in korea and caused a bunch of ecological problems and killed a bunch of wildlife and basically re reinvented that ecosystem as they knew it but i think it was like back in the 60s or 70s and america has famously had this weird kind of military occupation of South Korea that just kind of continues. And there's a very much a, a divide between the Koreans of like, yeah, they're here. they are our allies. The Americans are here to protect us. Or there's the other guys who are like, why the fuck are they here? We're fine. We're, yeah. We're, we're developed enough country that we don't need your you know, a bunch of American military dudes just hanging out in our towns all the time. Yeah. They're still there now. Like the, military occupation of Korea is still a thing that was happening when this film came out and as Bong Joon-ho does so spectacularly he takes a a genre or a theme or an idea and uses it to discuss bigger political situations and, and social structures and things like that really really well and as much as I love the film I want to talk about the monster because the aquatic kind of like it's got like a rat tail with like a big gross spiky thing on the end of it and like like not quite tentacles but like these things but it's all about the mouth it's this (laughs) layer upon layer of teeth and flaps and horrible gross shit yeah and even when you got the 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 main character trying to like whack it with a signpost with like a stop sign and stuff like that and trying (laughs) to hit it it's just like it starts off as this unkillable monster and you kind of you kind of get to know more about it going through the film and understand and eventually they're basically just like mustard gas the thing and just bomb the fuck out of it and kill a bunch of civilians and that's a huge like you know a big discussion point again for for the political side of things but the fact that it's kind of man made but looks otherworldly and is essentially like able to be killed by normal means unlike so many of the other monsters we've talked about you know you can't just stab Godzilla with a big piece of metal and expect him to be like, yeah, yeah, we've beaten Godzilla. So many things, they just deflect bullets and whatever. It's like, yep, there are unkillable monsters. Whereas this thing feels a bit more animalistic, a bit more vulnerable. It's just kind of you don't even get the impression it's doing anything particularly bad until you see like the blood splatter as the camera like follows its trail of destruction through the city. But yeah, I, I love that film and I think that monster is such a unique take because uh, director bong just went straight and did the like yeah fuck it i'm just going to show it in the first like 10 minutes of the film we have a little thing with the with the scientists and then here's the monster here you go and yeah
3: yeah i th- i think it's interesting the, the design alone is very interesting you're right because it, it looks unique, and that's the kind of thing you need at the end of the day. You mm. don't want something little too. Yeah, I, I tried to describe it a couple of minutes ago, and I was like, "Yeah, it's got stuff and things and a big
0: mouth."
1: And... <laughs>
3: <laughs> my, my general idea. Well, I'm this, it's like I don't know exactly because I wasn't paying attention in school, but um, the the development developmental stage in between a tadpole and a frog, there is a sort of half developed thing, which is a tadpole <laughs> with legs, and like yeah, slam some huge fucking teeth on that. Mm. That's basically kind of yeah. What this is, and it is interesting how it's you know the political statement and things. It has such um 50s B movie origins, as you said, the idea of like a, you know the evil scientist just chuck the chemicals down the drain. I don't care. Um, and it's like <laughs> that—that's how the turtles were made in Teenage Ninja <laughs> Turtles. What <laughs> this thing in the sewer just got? But it's like I mean, it's the irresponsibility of man. But yes, yeah, so the the creature design makes an actual logical sense. Is formaldehyde the ooze, as I saw what we're learning now? Effectively, yeah. Oh my the god. The secret of the formaldehyde.
2: Did you guys not watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 Secret of the Ooze? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's just yes. a long Spike documentary where they uh, test it, and, you know, there's Donatello there just doing lots of, like, chemical stains and stuff until he goes, <laughs> oh no, it's formaldehyde.
3: <laughs> Turns out it's formaldehyde. Whoopsie daisy. <laughs> we can make tons of turtles now. Do you want to? Yeah, I don't know if it's implied, like, what creature
0: I, d- I don't know the ecology of Korean riverbanks well enough to know that, like, is this based on like, is this like a mutated version of a Korean thing I did have a look and, mm. and there's, a, there's a couple of influences there from fiction and from real creatures yeah. but in terms of like it's not a mutated turtle like the Teenage Mutant yes, Ninja Turtles yes. are like as far as I can tell like you said Matt it's a unique thing of its own and that's a weird kind of like it's got man-made origins but it's this whole other weird thing. And it's in this like weird, just the cocoon that it's in under the bridge when you first see it. And you're like, what the fuck is that? They're hanging upside down. And it just drops in the water. And everybody's like, uh, what? (laughs) And they just stare at the water and then people
3: just start (laughs) chucking stones and bread (laughs) at
0: it and stuff.
3: It's the public, isn't it? And the thing is, I like like the characters that sent me back to the film, unfortunately, rather than the monster. But the, the central characters aren't your... And again, Bong Joon-ho in general does this, but they're not, uh, like you know, leading scientists. They're not the military. They're kind of just—I don't want to say work. but they're, they're, they're just working-class people. They're who, just blokes. Yeah, it's yeah, just a bunch of just, people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, working-class people. One of which in the family is an Olympic medalist. Um, yeah. But that's kind of the point. It's just the nature of um this family. There's a bit of a family drama going on in the whole thing, and the, the, there's a lot of shocking moments to the film itself. you are like oh well obviously she'll get out of the way oh god no it's kind of just <laughs> taken her oh fuck nope. it, it it is a fascinatingly good film i think it still holds up jack's right there's some there's some ropey cgi stuff but the, mm. the the way you get around cgi is you usually put it under cover of particles and properties that you can hide it in rain mist night timers especially the big thing put it in night and, and low lighting but this happens right out in the fucking open right in the middle of the day and most of it still looks really really good and again 2006, uh, I think when the film came out, I'm pretty sure about that. Yep. 2006 CGI in, in the West was equally quite crap. So, <laughs> and, 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 and even if you had like a big budget, it was still like, it eh, hasn't aged brilliantly. Um, mm-hmm. So it gets, it, gets, it gets a lot of uh, uh, credit, should we say, in my, in my eyes. But no, I think the distinct thing about the, the, all of the, the creatures we're describing today, I mean, arguably, I don't know about the mid man, but we'll go back to that one. They're all recognisable they're all distinct it's not like oh is that this the whole point of the invisible man he's not recognizable man. well <laughs> <The whole point. laughs> i must admit I, I, invisible man people still think of like oh yeah got, like he's got the the big the bandages, goggles yeah, and the bandages yeah. Yeah. yeah equally the the one in the invisible man i don't want to give things away but when you see it you go oh shit that's very cool and very unique so it, it, it does lend itself that as well like obviously king kong godzilla have had iterations that look slightly different but you could still tell what a godzilla is whether it's the animated version of the Legendary version or the, um, the old Toho version, it's still Godzilla. And the same way that the host, uh, the Guemal, whatever you want to call it, will always be, oh, that thing. Because it's
0: the thing from the host.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's
0: recognizable for sure. So, with the interesting, kind of unique and weird monster from the host, Tim, I think you've got something particularly interesting and unique for us for your last pick as well.
2: Yes. For our. Uh sort of our, our last of the main picks, it's something a lot more heartwarming. <laughs> <laughs> I have gone for Stitch from Lilo and Stitch. Amazing. Because I love that film.
0: Oh, yes. It's, yeah. it's yeah, great.
2: It. And I love the way that it plays with, in a lot of ways, the kind of the ideas of kaiju movies, where you have like sequences of Stitch constructing a cardboard city so he can rampage through it. <laughs> and we're told that it's, it's kind of his essential programming is to cause chaos. And it is, it's obviously it's a, a film about finding family and the kind of the, the need for love to overcome trauma and these kind of things. And, and obviously Stitch is the result of these kind of genetic experimentations and uh, God knows what, yeah. alien technology. I think he's a really he's a really fun design. He sort of comes in several modes, so to speak, because he starts out with uh, six limbs uh, and then kind of just basically just like pulls two of them into his own body in what, when you stop to think about it, is a, a horrible bit of body horror.
0: Yeah, some real fucking body it's horror. Chronos, right? uh,
2: <laughs> but obviously not played at all like that because it's a Disney kids film. Just kind of pull uh, and basically kind of goes... Tries to turn himself into a dog, despite the fact that he's uh, a blue alien. And I just love. There's also
3: the premise of Sonic. But at yeah. one point, <laughs> this this is a man. N- no, that is no, that is not a child. That is Sorry. a that is a creature in a cowboy.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yeah, I I love just the weird little quirks that they they put on him, like the uh, the bit where he um. Is able to play sound from the record player uh, by putting his claw slash fingernail oh, yes, on the record yes. and opening his mouth right. up, which is just such so perfectly weird. And also, like given like this very kind of simple weakness of uh, he's just too heavy to swim, so he sinks. And so then they put him on Hawaii, so he can't escape and can't get to a big enough city. To kind of fulfil his rampage desire, and that means that he then almost you almost watch a monster have an existential crisis because <laughs> because it's unable to do what it feels it's meant to meant to do.
0: I want that as like a jeopardy question. In which Disney film yeah. does the monster have an existential crisis?
2: <laughs> it,
0: uh, is the answer Lilo and Stitch? <laughs> ding ding ding. <laughs>
2: But, yeah, I, th- I, I think, you know, obviously it's an incredibly different kind of monster and, and doing different things within the film. You know, they, we, we were talking about them earlier, you know, and I think that there are monster films that have the monster as the protagonist or as a sympathetic figure. Uh, you know, even going back to your Frankensteins and stuff like that, where yeah, yeah. you're not meant to necessarily hate or, or revile... Uh, the creature and uh, you know you have a perhaps a moment uh, or several you know there might be a moment halfway through the film or whatever where you suddenly see the monster in the new light Stitch Lilo and Stitch obviously brings that quite forward uh, to you know he's he's kind of chaotic but in a fun way right at the beginning Um, and there's a little bit of kind of uh, initial horror you know that when he's put in the dog pound and you see all the other dogs are just completely terrified by him and stuff like that and you think okay what's he gonna do with this little girl uh it's like mm-hmm. oh just become her best friend and uh <laughs> play Elvis music so obviously a very different type of monster but one that I love nonetheless
3: I feel Lilo and Stitch is is fantastically underrated as a film it's it's I, one I of those well. yep. we keep forgetting it exists which is tragic because again it's like it's oh 2002 I think yeah about then Sounds about yeah. right. So it's yeah. like eighteen years old. So it is now. One could argue a Disney classic at a time when Disney was punching out f- subpar films. If we're honest, mm-hmm. and
0: Yeah, that, that's the Brother Bear era. Fuck it that, really man. is. Yeah,
3: <laughs> it was at the tail end of like Atlantis and Treasure Treasure Planet, which are like oh, that Treasure mm-hmm. Planet. But I at the Treasure same Planet. time, the Pixar Space was taking Pirates. the yeah, it is. Pixar were taking the merch the, the, taking the lead and 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 were sort of capturing the crown, shall we say. Um, but Lilo and Stitch is good. It's always, uh, when um, Moana came out, I, I love Moana, it's a great film, um, one yep, of Disney's yes, best, yeah. but they were like, oh, it's brilliant, we got our first island character for the Pacific, and I'm like, first? What are you talking about? Yeah. Because Lilo's been around for quite some time, and it's like, well, we mean voiced by someone who isn't white. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> um, um, it, it is a bit of a weird one, because it, it is forgotten by its own thing, which is so strange, because there's no reason it shouldn't be, it, sorry, so it should be, because it's, does the typical thing, is, as Tim mentioned, the good, strong Disney messages of family acceptance and and so on and so forth, despite the fact that Disney doesn't accept a lot of people. But we'll move on about that. It's got all the cute, cuddly shit that is actually terrifying, which is, again, very Disney. And the merchandising is through the roof because Stitch is a great fucking design. And mm. Tim says, in multiple modes or multiple forms. It's he's the perfect form. cuddly toy, isn't he? It yeah, like is. You just <laughs> want yeah.
0: a little Stitch. I think he's perfect for kids to kind of... Be, be a bit scared of but then kind of fall in love with in that kind of best friendly kind of way which is exactly the emotion that Lilo goes through in the, in the film as well yeah. it's that perfect like oh he's a bit of a scary design but he's kind of adorable at the same time and he, I think he balances that really really well Yeah, the,
2: the moment where, he, where she first encounters him and he's like up on two legs and holds out his hand and tries to say hi he's like genuinely like what mm. the fuck is this <laughs> uh, uh, and then goes in for a hug and it's like oh no it's fine he's just a puppy without you know turning this into a discussion of the film rather than the monster i think the uh, disney didn't quite know how to market Elo and stitch because it's I, I think they tried to go try and turn it into kind of like a boy's film quote unquote um uh, mm. by being <laughs> like oh look it's this chaotic monster that's that's wrecking shop and i think there are a lot of like boys who liked it for that you know uh, young boys who liked it for that aspect
0: there's, there's three of them right here yeah
2: <laughs> i i think it's it's i don't know it's it, at, the, at the root of it all it's it's a family film and i think you know it's in lilo it's got a character who's quite a bit younger than most disney protagonists are and starts out quite uh, abrasive there was a terrible hot take that went around Twitter about a month ago, probably more, I think it was pre-lockdown, uh, about yeah. how, like, oh, Lilo and Stitch is actually super problematic. It, it was complete nonsense. Like, Lilo is quite a complex character for a five-year-old girl.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and Nanny is as well. She's yeah. Like, the older sister's fantastic. I
2: think that it is, it is a, it, in a lot of ways it's fitting that it is this odd, little, weird, slightly forgotten uh, runt of, of the Disney uh, from an odd era, because that <laughs> that feels exactly appropriate for the characters, uh, especially Stitch.
3: Which, which is weird, because the marketing... The, well, I, I remember the teaser poster. I'm pretty sure it's online somewhere mm. and you can easily find it. But the marketing, I remember at the time, was a, a white background poster with Stitch in the middle saying, look, here's the design, here's the cute thing. And it had so many of the big, stable 90s releases on the border looking with disgust and horror mm. and I think even maybe the first There's teaser one in trailer,
0: every family is the tagline that's, that's that exactly it that's yeah. right
3: yeah it, it was very much like the idea of like we well, don't know what this is it's not really our thing and like yeah that's I can see why you're marketing that way that's quite interesting but that's also a really dumb move yeah. if you're or if, if people are, you know the iconic films that you've made over the last couple of, of the decade or so is, are shunning this because then arguably I think well maybe I shouldn't watch it then yeah. um, <laughs> you like, like Disney you're not gonna like this Wait, like, what <laughs> What do you mean? I do have my own hot take about this. Oh, Stitch is minions done right. Oh, because mm, okay. it, there's only one of them. Um, first of all, <laughs> that helps. they they're they it's it's a babbling, incoherent toddler who is inherently quite evil, but actually quite cute because it's designed to be evil by things around it. It's like well, minions are designed to be evil because they are just because. We, as we discussed in a previous episode, Lovecraftian horror because um, <laughs> they crawl out down the
0: primordial ooze. That's why. <laughs>
3: yep, but <laughs> people like them because they're usually they're like toddlers having a tantrum. They're funny, they're energetic, they're hyper, but they're cute and sweet, and they're and ultimately good the
0: design as well.
3: Exactly, yeah. Stitch is the same thing. Except there's one of them, and it's much more complex and well done. If Stitch was dumb and there were 50 of them, you'd have minions, <laughs> and it's like, Huh.
2: Or um, Lilo because- and Stitch the series. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They have like
0: multicolored monsters showing up and stuff, and there's yeah. all, uh, loads of other weird little. There's a
2: whole. Lilo and Stitch kind of cinematic universe that also I believe diverges at a certain point where there's like wow there's like a Japanese series that isn't canon with the others or something <laughs> like that wow I can't remember exactly yeah it's it's it, 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 like I think because it like like you say like it was in this weird period for Disney where Pixar was making all the money they didn't really have anything you know they they were making you know Chicken Little and Home on the Range and, and
0: they started doing Disney Channel stuff yeah. Which then you suddenly shift yeah. all your yeah. Let's make a TV series, like you said, out of Lilo and Stitch. Now, and of all the, the the films that did okay, let's turn it into a TV series and just churn out crap for the next three years. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: uh, and I yeah. think there was there was a certain recognition that like, okay, this is the best thing that we've done in a while, and it didn't really succeed at the box. So I, I honestly don't know how it performed at the box office, but probably didn't do as well as Disney hoped it would. Um, but we know that the concept is strong enough that we can kind of milk it for a TV series. Whereas, like yeah. no one, no one tried to make Brother Bear like the, the show. They, there's probably a couple of there's probably a couple of directed video. I'm,
3: I'm, I'm sure sequels. a few people tried to, but fuck that. I'll man. um I'll give you some stats if you like. So just talking about years and proximity and all that sort of stuff. So if we take um, Atlantis for example, the Disney animated film that came out in 2001, that underperformed at the box office and and and. Badly, really badly. Uh, the budget was around 90 to 120 million, thereabouts. So we say 100 million for our sake. And it made about 186 million. For a Disney film, that's not enough. It's, it's big money. It's still really good, but not nearly enough. And the merchandise didn't actually help either. 2003, the year after Lilo and Stitch, Brother Bear, which we mentioned, is eh. That came out and was released. Really, well, it was a budget of forty-six million. So obviously, they slashed the budget at that point, saying no more expensive CGI films, just do whatever. That made two hundred and fifty million at the box office. So made more was more of a success, considering the nature of the mm-hmm. the, the metric of the money and things. Lilo and Stitch, however, was the, year, the the sandwiched in between them on a budget of about eighty million. So again, not the huge length of uh, Atlantis, but it'd been too late to stop that budget at that point because they wouldn't have been able to to, to course correct that quickly and it made 273 million now technically speaking that's quite good but if we talk about i mean if i just quickly punch up the numbers for something like if we go to pocahontas for example so mid 90s and um an average release a a slightly disappointing release i still like pocahontas but you know that was made on 55 million and made 346 in 90s money so basically not nearly enough and i'm not even going to start with the fact that around the same time monsters inc came out Monsters Inc. was on 115 million, so very, very expensive, but no less expensive than Treasure Planet, basically, and made half a billion dollars. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, it's 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 underperforming is is very much how they would have seen it. Now, obviously, yes, they did the director video sequel and the TV series. Like, what can we punch out from this property we think has a bit of life in it, but not enough that we can actually warrant going back to properly with actual money. It's a weird thing that. It hadn't really occurred to me that it
0: spawned a franchise, but I just Googled it, and it literally said, do you mean Lilo and Stitch Brackets franchise? I was like, what do you mean? I know there's two other films, because there's an origin of Stitch film. There's Stitch, the movie, and there's also, apparently... I'm going to give you guys a quick rundown, because there's a load of shit here. There (laughs) is... 2002's Lilo and Stitch. Okay. 2003's Stitch! Exclamation mark! The movie. Uh, then from 2003 to 2006, you have Lilo and Stitch the series, which we already discussed, whoop. continuing where the movie Stitch, the movie, leaves off. And you have Experiment 625 and Experiment 221 in there as well. Yeah. So the, the Rob Paulson-voiced weird little creature as well. Mm-hmm. Then that series ends with the television film Leroy and Stitch. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up, I promise. Then 2005, you go to Lilo and Stitch 2. Stitch has a glitch, and it's one of those classic bunch of bullshit direct-to-video, none of the returning cast, classic Disney sequel that we know oh so well on this podcast. Hmm. The short film included on the DVD is the origin of Stitch, and you find out his origins because, sure... I guess we did get enough of that in the original film. Yeah, Yeah, we we know know
2: his origins.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's explained in the first movie. And then, yeah, Leroy and Stitch is in 2006. That finishes off the series. And then we get to the next section on the Wikipedia page, which is (laughs) post-Lilo (laughs) spin-off. What? How is this thing still going? And this is where it gets interesting, Tim. This is where your your thing comes in. So not only do we get Stitch meets High School Musical... What? I I mentioned Disney Channel, ladies and gentlemen. That's that shit right there. That's the Disney Channel poisoning and infecting everything around it. (laughs) Then, not only is that a Disney Channel thing, it's a Disney Channel Japan thing. So it's an anime. (laughs) Following the success of Stitch Meets High School Musical, the anime (gasps) Stitch exclamation mark the series ran from two thousand eight two thousand five, and is an anime. What the fuck is
1: going on?
0: (laughs) Oh, oh, oh. But it doesn't end there, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Stitch and I, as in AI, in 2017, follows Leroy and Stitch, the ending of the previous series, Lilo and Stitch the series, but is before the events of the Stitch anime and is made in China. (laughs) Jesus. What the fuck is this franchise? I think it's
2: all... It's all just setting up for when Stitch shows up in Fast and Furious 10.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Isn't John Cena is not Vin Diesel's long lost brother. It's Stitch.
2: <laughs> we find
0: out Vin Diesel is not a genetic experiment as well. He's,
2: he's experiment 001.
3: <laughs> I was going to say, I would not be surprised in the fucking slightest. Are you about to if, say what I
0: think you're about to say?
3: If this is one of Disney's next new live action. Adaptations.
0: Oh my God! <laughs> For the listeners, I just held up the notes that said "live action remake" in bold letters. I, I felt phone. this would be a proper Disney Plus one. I saw one where you well. were going, Matt, and I was like, "God mm-hmm. damn! Yep, yep, yep." You know exactly. I mean, so yeah, in in 2018, it was reported they've started pre production oh, and development, okay. but nothing has basically happened since then. To be but, fair, Disney, yeah,
3: everyone's juggling things. It but,
0: takes a while, uh, so yeah. yeah, we're gonna.
3: Because It's such an easy one to do, because any visual effects you need to do is the, uh, the, the book-ending opening stuff with the, the alien things, and then the, this creature, which again, for Disney+, Plus, it's quite easy for them to do there. They'll probably just do it there. Yeah. yeah. Fuck, Fuck no.
0: me. I had no idea there was a... I know I you mentioned it to him, like, oh, there's an alternate timeline yeah. with fucking in Japan. Like, what? I had to Google that, like, what is this? And like, yep. It's an anime set between the TV series and the other films. Very Jesus interesting. Jesus Oh my god. I never, never assumed Lilo and Stitch was a franchise until now. I was like, Oh yeah, I know. There's one film, and then there's the classic director DVD bullshit. Yeah,
2: no, which no, not uh, like a bunch of other stuff as much it. as that, you know, dilutes <laughs> perhaps the quality of the original because I doubt any of them hold a candle to it. Um, sure, I'd assume not. <laughs> it, it proves the popularity, and like we say, like it's he is yeah, yeah. Stitch yeah. has continued to be this kind of. Uh, cute, merchandisable figure for Disney. Um, and I think uh, that speaks to the quality of the original design and and the original kind of movie. It
0: says a lot that it's Stitch, the movie, and Leroy and Stitch, Stitch and I, Stitch in Japan. Yeah. It's not Lilo and Stitch go to Japan. It's not Lilo yes. and Stitch go off and do the thing. Poor old Lilo just gets cast off to the side. Yeah. And Stitch goes off on his adventures because he's... As you said, the merchandisable, bankable star, for want of a better phrase, that Disney yeah. can make. Oh, he's in Japan. Look, he's wearing a little geisha outfit. Isn't he adorable? <laughs> oh, look, he's doing this thing. Let's
3: culturally appropriate Chinese stuff now and make him look <laughs> like this. Like, oh my god, I can see it now. Hang on. Where is this going to sound? You no. guys didn't see Men in Black International, did you? No. No, no thank god. I'm going to spoil something and I apologise, listeners, who are desperate to keep this thing, so skip, skip ahead by about a minute. So... At the start of Men in Black International, and it's really fucking. We talk about twists, film twists, and things previously. Really ugly, signposted twists. What really fucked me off. This is one of them. Um, <laughs> at the start of Men in Black International, we see a young version of Tessa Thompson's character, and she witnesses the Men in Black wiping the memory of I think her parents, and mm. is like, "Oh no, I I I escaped it somehow because reasons." And um, she discovers this little cute alien, which. I want to say is blue and very Meh! kind of thing. And she like lets it go and sets her free. And then later in the film, when she's an adult, it's all grown up and it's this huge hench uh, bodyguard. And it remembers her and it's, like, oh! and it's like, Oh, and it's like, Oh, a bit of a turn in the movie. It's like, Oh, I wonder if he'll come back later. That kind of <laughs> fucking shit. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if there'd be a similar situation where they're like Lilo and Stitch two, the alternate version where she's a grown, grown woman and Stitch is this angsty, you know, 30-year-old man.
0: <laughs> it's like, so we're doing it in what real is time where the live-action yeah. remake is actually just a, a real-time sequel. Yeah. Like, like they do with, like, the Blade Runner. Thing. Yes, like, yeah, exactly. It's 30 years later. Lilo and kind of Stitch 2049.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, and the idea that uh, it then becomes a bit of Shape of Water love story and it gets a bit weird. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I see, you joke about that. I saw quite a fun pitch a few years back, which was that uh, Lilo goes off to college and her assigned roommate is Boo from Monsters, Inc.
0: Ah, oh no. Brilliant. That's not where I thought you were going with that, and I'm very pleased that is where <laughs> you were going with that.
3: Yeah, I thought, I thought it would be another Despicable Me on her hands there for a second. That's exactly what I thought. Some fan fiction <laughs> we're heading
0: down to rule 34 now.
3: <laughs> 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 Definitely not. He's not just got six limbs. Oh <laughs>
1: god! <laughs>
0: He's like the baby from Son of the Mask.
3: Oh, God. oh He's got three And here we days. are, back at the fucking Son of the Mask again. Jesus.
2: Uh, <laughs> right, before, before we dive into chaos and, and just uh, multiple penises, that's kind of all of our main picks, but Matt, I think you've got uh, one more. Uh, I do. As, I have an honourable mention. As an honourable mention. Yeah, go for it.
3: So from uh, Cuddly Furry Aliens to Cuddly Furry Aliens, <laughs> hey... hey. We're going with the 2011 film, Attack the Block. Uh, Joe Cornish, who a lot of British people are age will know from Adam and Joe, with Adam Buxton, a great British comedic talent and moved out to America, whereas Buxton's still... Uh, Buxton is locally. There's like... When was alive. Buxton lives in Norfolk, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've bumped into him a couple of times. <laughs> and... And Joe Cornish Americans might not realise but he's he's worked on a lot of things um, as a writer especially so he was involved in the Tintin stuff with Spielberg he was involved in the Ant-Man things he's he's worked with a lot of individuals but this was his I don't know if his directorial I want to say it was his directorial debut we were at Kapow uh, we being my wife and members of Mint were at Capow in London uh, which was the Mark Miller the first uh, convention he'd held in in Angel in Islington where I'm basically from and they were promoting it there. And it was a very unknown thing, but we liked Adam and Joe. So we knew Joe, whatever Joe just was working with the call. Cool. And it started at that point, a practically unknown John Boyega and uh, Jodie Whittaker and stuff like that. And it just looked really cool. It was set in South London where this alien being, this small uh being arrives and these kids on an estate basically beat the shit out of it and kill it. Um And they're like, yeah, yeah. Um, and Welcome to London, motherfucker. Yeah. Very much so, yeah. Yeah. And uh, like, I said, Alien brov. And like, probably taking like <laughs> pictures on their phones and shit. Uh, after, I should point out trying to mug a woman coming back from her, uh, from her, yeah, uh, from, um, the tube station. So they're not like, you know, de- the arguably start quite deplorable characters. And then you realize as the story goes on, it's like, oh no, they're just living in a fucking estate. It's just they're prostrate kids. And it becomes very much a, a really, really good story of that regard. They're still assholes, because of course they are. But then because. <laughs> You know, the, the the first alien is killed. It sets off this almost like chemical reaction where these much larger, more terrifying aliens hunt it down and they start crashing. And uh, they, the kids take it upon themselves. that adults are assholes. And the drug dealers who live in the, in, in the block are, um, I'm not going to believe them. they're after them because of the whole situation in general and a slight affront and, and so on and so forth. So they take it upon themselves. To, to hunt these creatures down. And it's very, it's, it's like a 15 in, in Britain, I assume it's an R in the States. It's very visceral and, and brutal and, and lots of swearing. And from what I remember at the time, the Americans needed it subtitled <laughs> <laughs> because kiss my teeth, suck it, allow it, believe it. I kind of like, it was like, <laughs> I don't understand what they're saying. But it, it's, it's quite obvious what the fuck is going on. But it's really well done, captures a very, at that time, especially in 2011, an underrepresented part of of British society because everyone's still pushing the idea like this is just before the Olympics like Britain it's a wonderful place where everything's fine (laughs) no everything is really bad under the surface and and it's but it was but it was also like literally rather than just demonize them entirely, it was like, no, these are just kids. They're they're mm-hmm. they're just yeah. they're frustrated and they're let down they do, by the old generation. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. there's the idea that when when they do pair up with Jodie Whittaker's character, she's like, you try to fucking mug me. And it's like, look, we were more scared than you were. The the, the knife and stuff was just because we were worried and things like that. And she's like, Oh, my fucking hero, well done. And it's it's very lot of animosity there, and it's really well done. But the aliens are Fucking fantastic! I they're absolutely really love cool them. looking, yeah. Because again, Cornish wants something unique and uh, identifiable, and so there's only, I think, I want to say two. There's only two, and by that I don't mean the, the different versions. I mean the performers. There's Terry Notary, which we'll get back to in a second, and a, a, an assistant, as it were, in a creature department who, you know, portray these these creatures, these individual aliens, and then obviously because of the visual effects, they're multiplied into lots and lots of them attacking this. This set as it were uh, similar things like aliens for example there's only a handful of alien suits really but you know because of how it's shot it looks like there's hundreds of them and effectively what i think what do they what do they call it in the film That's like like some no eyes fucking chimp gorilla fucking shit yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like this black long gorilla fur sort of uh, fur and it's very very thick intense hair and long long limbs and they run on things and terry notary is one of those people up there with andy circus and i'm gonna be honest like lon chaney and stuff who does animal performances and makeup and costume stuff exceptionally well he's one of the mo capture top people um and he's very much known for his instructionals of for actors and things of how to perform like especially gorillas and, and and chimp like based things and animals um so he's he's very much a creature Person. He talks how to move, how to how to hold yourself, and that sort of stuff. So they obviously have this animalistic quality that feels both at the same time very unworldly, but also at the same time very recognisable. And the the actual costume is so simple, but the the I think it's a company in Sweden who did a very very slight adjustments on the visual effects. So they were saying that they had pitch black fur, and rather than having all the edges and things, and they did this, this is a weird thing to say, but in the Green Lantern comic. I think it's uh, Monka, he, he um, took out all the colour. So when the, the black of the costume doesn't reflect anything, he's like, well, no, it's, it's not made, I mean, it's made of energy. So it would just be void. There'd be no highlights, mm. and I think it's yeah. just, just a black void, which is such a striking thing to see in a comic. In the same way that seeing the film, they took out all the, a lot of the shadow work and the lighting work. So rather than having bounce and fill, they look like this void of, of light. And it's fascinating to see it, except for the mouth. Now at the time it was puppetry and it's this big neon blue sort of glowing teeth but it looked a little too puppetry so they enhanced that with CGI and unlike say like the remake uh, not the remake sorry the prequel of The Thing where they plastered over some really promising really really good visual effects You kind of ruined the practical stuff with CGI in that case Precisely precisely because this one complements it really well they take what's already there and enhance it and make it move a little bit more naturally like animal it quivers slightly when they're roaring and It's just so brilliantly simple. It's this dark four-legged creature with this glowing neon teeth. And that's all you know. It's an approaching thing that you can't see. And that's what really works best. There's two shots. One where Moses is running down the corridor and setting off fireworks and stuff. And the, the fucking score is amazing. And he's being chased by these things. And it's just fantastic. The other one's when they first start appearing. And they're completely wreathed in darkness in this pocket. that fuck is that? Did I ask you what, say? What, what the fuck is that? And then you look at it, and there's blo- glowing blue shimmering teeth, just almost like like with Alien, as in the the Giga designs. And it's just like, this is fucking great. And they move so fast. Yeah. So I I, I think that definitely deserves a mention, and because they are, again, distinctly unique, but stupidly unknown, and it's really annoying.
2: It's, it's such a fantastic design, and I kind of... I can't believe that it hasn't been replicated and stolen by Hollywood. Yeah, because seriously. you know, Attack the Block didn't. You know, it didn't didn't set the box office on fire, despite the fact that you know it was it was basically John Boyega's kind of debut, and you know got him noticed enough to then go yep. on and do Star Wars several years later, uh, and it's also got it's got a future Doctor Who in it. Um, so you know, it's a great cast and stuff like that. Really, really fun film, but you know, like, like you say, it, it, a slightly niche one where it requires subtitling for Americans so it's never going to blow, <laughs> blow like up you know. the box office. <laughs> the sort of black look of, of the aliens where they're, the, the mm. black is so dark that it swallows all the light. I can't believe we haven't seen that just like stolen and put in something, you know, mainstream and probably not quite as good because it's <laughs> so clever and yeah. it's so and distinct. And so easy to do. Yeah, and i guess i guess the 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 reason is because anyone who knows uh, a few you know who's seen attack the block or seen images from it would just go like oh it's like the attack the block aliens because it is it's unlike anything else really that i've ever seen especially on film like i can't think of anything that really compares to it which mm. is a which is just a sign of a good design
3: yes i agree so um speaking of honorable mentions we uh, mentioned earlier that tim um obviously brought up del toro and del toro is to be honest one of the f- well that's not that's not let not hype him too much but he does like practical effects and and also um really well done digital effects and the harmony of those two is fantastic um and you can uh, once you start pulling the thread of like oh del toro because of this film and then you think and this film and this film and this film now hang on and maybe all of his films so tim has some more more to bring to the table
2: yeah i'm I'm gonna kind of rapid fire through these because we could we could literally spend a whole podcast talking about del toro and monsters and like we might have
3: to at some point yeah his
2: (laughs) his approach to them like there's a reason i called him the monster daddy because he's (laughs) he's basically made it's because
3: you're in a club and you wear a certain mask and he comes in the room and you're like monster Uh, daddy
2: (laughs) but like he's basically made a career out of monsters i can't think of many of his films that don't have something monstrous in it and and explore what that means like you know and and even the ones where you wouldn't call them a monster there's there's ghost stories going on and stuff like that so yes but the 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 ones i wanted to kind of quickly run down were um uh in hellboy 2 the tooth fairies uh that they fight, which are that, that managed to have that initial cuteness of like, oh, you're not so bad. And then it's a swarm and they're actually terrifying. And they're ripping mm-hmm. the teeth out of BPRD agents and the forest God from that film, which is this beautiful, yeah, yeah. Uh, almost like Miyazaki studio Ghibli looking creature kind of brought to life. That's yeah. both uh, that again, plays with that, that aspect of um, like initially it's kind of monstrous and terrifying and, and, huge and awe-inspiring and then it very quickly becomes tragic when the hellboy kind of realizes like i've kind of got to kill this thing but it's the last of its kind and and that that's awful you know because it's not it's not meant for the modern world in a lot of ways
3: yeah you talk about the cave troll earlier the the way that where it's portrayed and it's not just the idea of this is a big beast rampage and we have to stop it because they do that's that's true but the way the music and the tone shifts to, and they say like Goss's character, he just says, you've killed a thing of last of its kind. How do you feel? It's like, fuck again. It's like, imagine a, t- a lion or a tiger is rampaging through a supermarket. You, you have to like, not necessarily kill it, but you have to do something to stop it. And it's like, and now what do you think? Now, you know, you've, you've destroyed a creature. You're like, Oh yeah.
2: In another, uh, Del Toro sequel, Blade 2, the yeah. Reaper design in that. Oh, that's so cool. Taking kind of vampires and, Putting both his own spin and just kind of uh, ramping up the body horror of them. And there's a, there's a fantastic scene where they do like the autopsy on one of them um, and it's kind of still alive. And yeah. you just know that Del Toro had so much fun because there's a lot of practical effects there and a lot of like <laughs> weird monster biology and stuff like that. And then the final one I wanted to mention is, of course, the kaiju in Pacific Rim, which. Again, you can tell he's had so much fun, like designing them and coming up with their like weird individual bits that make them unique. And you know the the, the textures of their skin and stuff like that is so good, and and they and they just feel huge and monstrous and uh, terrifying. So mm-hmm. yeah, Del Toro is the master.
3: I don't know why it comes in my head, but I think it's maybe just slightly over bearded men. But the idea is that <laughs> when George Lucas was working on Attack of the Clones, there's some, vi- some stuff on the DVDs and the special features and things where he's, and it's, it's such a, be- the, the, the behind the scenes on the prequels is fascinating, full stop, we won't get into that right now, but the amount of people who surrounded him with sycophantic, oh, thank you, George. Yes, George, it's such a great idea, George. And him saying, I want to make it all digital effects and blah, blah, blah. He's brought into a room, basically. And I've seen the same thing with Del Toro, when he was working on the first Hellboy movie, and they started making a maquette of um, Abe Sapien. And he says, Look at this fucking guy, he's beautiful. He's a god, and I am this. Oh my God. And it's like, that's, you know, it's, he, he genuinely appreciates the craft, and it's it's fascinating, and he adores all of it. And I think he genuinely, if he could, like the, the scene with um, the market scene in, in Hellboy 2, mm. I mean, there's just so much going on. And you do think of like the Cantina scene, for example, we, I mean, people always reference the Cantina scene um in star wars but then you see george lucas in sack of the clones where he's saying "Yeah," and he's brought up this enormous tray of faces of aliens and these designers have come up with so many interesting things because they are interesting and he pulls out a couple of them and he's like yeah yeah okay yeah i kind of like this i kind of like that and he's I love um, it, george lucas <laughs> and he takes he he, he literally Slowly to start with, but you can see in the background the animator's face, like "Don't touch any of these fucking clay models, you prick." <laughs> and he just kind of like, "I like this one, I like this one. I kind of like what's gone on this one top of his head. I mean, and he just t- tries to like rip a bit off and stick it on there, and like, oh no, what are you doing?" <laughs> and the thing he's creating, he's like, I like this sort of bullfroggy sort of neck and this horn ridge helmet thing, and I like the face on this guy. That's quite cool. And these these all of these aliens, I should point out, look amazing. They're all like spectacular talent. I'm not saying that a director shouldn't critique or tweak a a designer's initial concept, because of course you should, that's that's the nature of the vision. But sometimes you're like, dude, what are you talking about? Any of these would be perfect. And then he starts to shape it and you think, oh, I know what he's building. Oh, fucking hell. This is... Hang on, let's get the the character's name correct. I don't want to get pissed on by all the Star Wars fans. Jar-jumping. I'm (laughs) afraid you are incorrect. Dexter... Jester. Oh, Dexter Jester. Yes, Obi Wan's best friend. The 1950s diner motherfucker from it Attack looks of the like Clones. Stitch a little bit. In <laughs> yeah, a way. his multiple limbs and his bullfroggy face and his like. Whoa! What do you know? Well, that's a bit, <laughs> bit nicer to Watto. Um, but that was um, very Watto. Kaminoans. <laughs> I want that's a diner. Uh, yeah, yeah. Kind of talks like a 1950s. Uh, a little uh, bit like he's an extra in a Spider-Man comic. <laughs> like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> It's some sort of wackadoo. <laughs> anyway, the point is that um, he's creating this character and then obviously you see it brought to life in shitty two thousand early 2000 CGI. And you're like, ah, oh, yeah, great. And there's the 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 love of the craft is there. You can tell that Lucas is like Del Toro and does, but there's a different type of respect for it. I don't I don't know. I think Lucas is so obsessed with pushing the industry forward, or at least trying to, or thinking he is, whereas Del Toro. Is using the tools of what's available to him and creating something stunning. I, th- I think
0: George Lucas is obsessed with thinking he's pushing the industry forward. Is a fucking amazing sentence <laughs> <laughs> that sums up the prequels quite nicely. I'm uh, I'm James
3: Cameron. I don't think you are Lucas. <laughs> I think you did something right once, and everything yeah, else that's... has been kind of toilet circling.
2: You, you know how to hire good people. <laughs> <laughs>
3: you did yeah but you don't listen to them
0: yeah i think del toro is an interesting one in particular because he's kind of been the champion of that kind of practical effects mixed with cgi thing and you mentioned you know circus and notary and those guys and we mentioned earlier on with the pale man how much doug jones has been an influence in that sense of definitely bringing those those practical like he plays the fawn plays pan and he plays the pale man and He's in a you know Ape Sapien. He is Ape Sapien as well. Like yeah. he does an amazing performance. And I think Del Toro gets that kind of physical aspect of certain creatures and certain monsters and brings that in a way. And then he can also go to the other end and do the Pacific Rim shit and just go mad. And be like, I've invented my own Kaiju universe. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do what we like, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, their, their unique designs, to be the Hellboy films I think are hidden gems in recent cinema. I fucking adore both of those films. Yeah, I think they're hugely underrated. Ron Perlman is perfect, and again, a huge collaborator with uh, Del Toro as well. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think I think there's a reason you said, Tim, that Del Toro is Daddy of the Monsters. And,
2: and, that and that I, makes sense. I, I can't think of many directors who are better at blending cgi and practical effects than he is and i think that makes the difference especially like especially when you want to have a creature or a character that has just an emotional impact on the audience Mm -hmm. Uh, people can tell What's CGI, what's what is CGI and what is not, and people and actors like when something is really there, it's so much easier to react to it than a tennis ball on a stick, you know. And I think he understands that, and that is why he's so good at making these creatures that are both intimidating and supernatural and kind of uh, otherworldly, but also sympathetic and emotionally resonant.
0: So that is a rundown of all of our favorite monsters maybe not all of them but certainly some notable some memorable some unique some weird some surprisingly merchandisable and cuddly ones as well (laughs) and uh Yeah. yeah let us know about your favorite monsters from the history of cinema from recent cinema if there's any you know we maybe haven't heard of if there are some hidden gems out there we're not aware of if you can stump Matt, I'll be impressed. So yeah. there's the challenge for you listeners who are like, here's a monster film Matt's never heard of. I'll, I'll, I'll be impressed. Oh, so. there's a lot of
3: B movie shit. I'm um, um, yeah.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. I'm sure there is a bunch yeah. of yeah made on a budget of three hundred dollars.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: you can tweet at us. We are sequelizers on Twitter. We are Sequelizers on Instagram. We are Sequelizers on Facebook. It's nice and easy. We've got our SEO sorted out. It's the same spelling. It's the same name on everything. Uh, If you have longer questions or anything like that, you can email us at Sequelizers at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, if you want to direct your questions at me, you want to question my choice of monsters or discuss uh, your favorite Lovecraftian fiction, I am JLW Chambers on pretty much everything. If you want to chat to me, Tim, How can people contact you on the internet?
2: Uh, You can find me at uh, trivia underscore lad on uh, Twitter, which is the thing I use most often and the best place to find me and ask me questions about films and TV and comics and music and whatever uh, piques your fancy. So uh, yeah. Matt, how about
3: you? S T O G H Z Stogs on pretty much everything. Um, and as as with Tim and Jack, come talk to me if you want. I'll I'll respond. I guess I'm also on the Discord and things, so we obviously all hang out there every now and again. It's a lot to catch up on because there's a lot of you guys now. So sometimes I'm like, oh shit, I scroll through a lot of things and <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to keep up with it. Just a bit of promotional shit that will always it's evergreen, always evergreen. Cheese mints. It's so another the the films I make and things I do and such. We we mention it every time, but. Uh, the, the primary thing we're doing at the minute is, is basically Super Happy Kill Time, which is a web series. We do uh, have a film coming soon, a short film, because the world going on the way it is, all, all sort of festival dates are questionable. But we've recently been selected for a festival in, in, uh, in Seoul, which is amazing, in South Korea. And we'll find out if there's any nominations and awards coming from that soon, which is good. We were hoping to be able to go to that. But I mean, South Korea's been handling the epidemic really the pandemic really well. Britain has not. So yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we'll see they won't their passports. Let you motherfuckers yeah. in. I mean, if I use my Irish passport, like, hello, where have you come from? Don't worry. <laughs> Look at my Irish passport, we're fine. But uh, yeah, so that's very, very cool. So if you want to check out the series, please do. And everything else. Reviews at the minute, obviously, are quite quiet because yes, there are a few new films coming out right now on streaming, but kind of busy. And <laughs> also, I haven't been to the cinema recently. So there's not a lot of reviews, but all the classic reviews, like Invisible Men, various bits and pieces, are on there if you want to go read them. So thank you very much if you choose to do so. Yeah, probably a bunch of the films we talked about
0: on this episode will probably be on probably. the redrighthand.co.uk, right? Very likely. Very okay. likely. And with that all out of the way, if you would like to support us, we would very much appreciate it. We know time's difficult at the moment, at the time of recording, and uh, yeah, everybody's struggling very much so. But if you are able to, and if you would like to get some extra content and some bonus stuff from us, you can go to patreon.com slash sequelizers. You can get digital Versions of the posters that John Scarrett has been designing for us. Physical copies of the posters that John Scarrett has designed for us. Extra content, extra episodes. We mentioned the uh, what we've been watching recently episode. Uh, we record those exclusively for Patreon. They're a, kind of a regular feature of ours and we discuss what we've been watching recently. We've done an episode about film food. There's loads of, there's a bank of outtakes and ridiculous crap that's been cut from the uh, the last few seasons that is just hilarious and often completely mad and uh yeah if you want to support us on there patreon.com slash is the place to go and with that we will see you next week thank you very much for listening
3: bye everybody <laughs>